Hey, how's it going, Universe? Welcome to another episode of Zoobox Goes to the Movies. I'm joined again by past and future guests, Big Paul. What's going on? Yo, Paul? how you doing? Oh, I'm doing. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm always doing great when we do this because we talk about good movies. The only time, the actually the first movie we talked about, maybe not so much, but it was an interesting conversation. So I guess it gave us that. It uh, sure greasy, did. The Greasy Strangler. The Greasy Strangler basically set the tone for the new era of Zoobox Ghost of the Movies. It became kind of a different show. So, but this week we're going to be talking about a movie that's kind of near and dear to our heart. At least it was at some point in our lives. It's going to be interesting. I've told Paul like all week, like, don't fucking tell me what you think. I don't want to fucking hear anything. We're going to save it for the podcast. Because it's been a long time since we've, I think we've revisited it. And not only that, but like... Uh, read the book, kind of just went through the process like we have been with the other movies we've been talking about. So I'm excited to get into the conversation itself. But before we do that, as as tradition with Big Paul. Oh, yes. So we're going to talk about what we're drinking tonight, folks. I'm drinking 1776 straight bourbon, whiskey, 100% proof, 50% alcohol vo- by volume, 50%. Usually it's like 40, you know? 40, 45. I don't see too many 50% out there. No, man, for sure. I uh, dropped the ball this week, so I'm carrying over last week's recommendation of you know, High West Double Rye. So why don't you crack that sucker open? Tell me how it is. Oh, I'm Tell going me what to. I'm missing. Oh, I, I, I can let it aerate a little bit. You know, I'm learning. Uh, yes. Let it, let it yes. breathe for a second. Mm. So let's, let's see here. Let's take, a, let's take a dive. Doesn't smell bad. You know, it doesn't have that harsh alcohol smell, you know, sometimes when you, like, drink a cheap whiskey or something, and it just kind of yeah. stings your nostrils. Mmm. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> the sulfates. There we go. Oh, goddamn. Really? Got a little bite. It's got, a little, it's got that perfect amount of bite, make you feel like a man. But it's pretty good. That's like drinking like if Jim Beam was good. <laughs> I drink a lot of Jim Beam. So, so, so it's, it's definitely it's you definitely know you're drinking a bourbon. Yeah, but you're saying it's like it's a it's a little subtle though. You're saying both in the uh, the smell and the aftertaste. Yeah, the aftertaste is nice and smooth. It doesn't kind of linger. It kind of just washes a little bit over. A little mm-hmm. warmth in your heart. Yeah. Oh yeah, buddy. Oh yeah, this is going to be something. To revisit. Yeah, well, I will pick it up this week. Either better late than never. Uh, let's see how the high rest double ride tastes. Still good. <laughs> Magnificent, as always. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to be talking about uh, the 1990 film. Oh my God, I have one sip and I'm already like, uh, the 1999 film Fight Club, directed by David Fincher. Written by Jim Ools, adapted from a novel from Chuck Palahniuk. It stars Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Meatloaf, um, 
I was going to say Marla Singer, but her name is Helena Bonham Carter. And others. Got actually kind of a stacked cast of like great character actors. Jared Leto's in it. Uh, the guy that's the, one of the leads of Mindhunter, uh, David Fincher's Netflix show, he's in it. He's the guy that says has the line, in death, we have a name. Yeah. <laughs> that guy rules. <laughs> Um, and if you don't know the the plot synopsis, I'll give you the the the, the IMD logline. I love them because they they're so vague sometimes. They it could be anything. Uh, it's an insomniac office worker and a devil may care soap maker form an underground fight club that evolves into something much much more. So Paul, like, where do we start here? Because like I guess we got to give a little context for like when we found Fight Club. A little reminiscing, some personal yeah. anecdotes of the movie. Uh, we saw this movie in 1999. I was 13. You would have been, or yeah, we were, fr- we were we were freshmen in high school when we saw this. Were we? Yeah. Because I it oh, yeah. been like it would have been 1999, so I would have been 12 going on 13 when this came out, and you would have been 13 going on 14. Paul and I have a yeah. very close well, birthdays. Yeah, but you uh, skipped a grade because you're wicked smart. Wicked. We're all we're all that uh, we're all at uh, Marimonte at that time. No, this is before Mar- Marimonte. I I lived in New Hampshire. Ah, oh, well, fuck yeah. me then. I don't know. Late nineties, we saw it. <laughs> we we saw, saw it, and it was a uh, it was a movie that like completely enveloped our life for a weird amount of time. Mm-hmm. Almost obsessively, I feel like we watched it all the time. We did, we did. And I started looking at it, just like, what a dangerous thing to watch. You're watching people twice your age at that point in time in your life, and just kind of fantasizing that, like, oh man, that's so cool. Fight Club, Project Mayhem. So at the surface level, we were all about that. The best part about that movie, though, is that's really what introduced us um, to the Pixies. Yes, the, and, that, uh, we actually literally used to just watch the end scene and the credits sometimes, because we had no other way to listen to the songs. It wasn't until my uncle actually came over my house and he had Surfer Rosa and I burnt a copy. That was the first copy that circulated amongst our friends. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. But yeah, that was a great transition of our lives too because we went from Megadeth, Metallica, Judas Priest to Pixies. We just, it was a hard, that was a hard turn. It was a hard turn. Especially because the Pixies, I mean, for a long time in my life, and even still today, whenever I go back and listen to the Pixies, you know, a couple times a year, I'll go listen to the discography. It's like still probably in my top five bands. Like yeah, I just, sure. I just really okay. All right, well, let's let's the original crop up to Bossa Nova. Or no, is it Bossa Nova? Or is it Planets? No, yeah, it's Bossa Nova, the last album of the original like four albums. I cannot speak. To whatever is going on now, whatever fuckery they have going on now, I cannot speak to that. I've listened to some of it. It's not all awful, but it's not. It's not as seminal as those first four. I mean, at least in my I, I got you, man. I got you. But yeah, that's uh, what my big uh, my big thank you to Fight Club was introducing me to that. Yeah, but it wasn't it, your big thank you to the Fight Club. Isn't because it taught you how to be a man. Oh, I mean, we can get into that right later, but well, for, but for I don't now, know, let's Paul. go with. I think we should tell maybe, people maybe, about you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was so. I, I mean, we were just so young, and it was so, we were so taken with the style, and yeah. like just the hipness of the movie. Like it is truly 
especially at the time, like you had never seen anything like that. Never. Yeah. It was so kinetic and fucking just nihilistic and, and you know, and and it had like these kind of superficial but actually when you get older and start understanding it, like deep uh, observations about masculinity and about what it means to be a man in the modern era. So I was like, you know, I was thinking about it when I watched it this time and I was like, cause I watched it so many times when I was younger, we just like kind of responded on some sort of like primal basic level yeah, to, to the plight of the characters yeah. and like this, this lost generation, which is weird. I wonder if every generation feels like that now that I'm thinking about it. Cause this would be about gen Xers having a problem with boomers or the, <laughs> You know the the baby boom after World War Two. That's what these characters would be about. That age, these be the Gen X, right? But the, was it the screen um, the screenwriter for Fight Club? He likened it to you know, like the the Graduate and some of those uh, articles he sent me as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's, you make that, some can also make the argument. You know that it's uh, Holden Caulfield. You know from Catching the Rye. You know that this generation's version. Yes. Of that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely cycles, you know. I mean, because Chuck, Chuck to the last one, but you know, the reoccurrence, like we don't really change. Well, hey, dude, yeah, listen, we're even gonna get, we're gonna dip our toes back into a little two thousand one, some stuff in there. It's a little crossover here. Zarathustra is kind of present in Fight Club, and we're gonna talk about that. But it's, it, you know, I was listening to an interview with Chuck Palahniuk. He was on Joe Rogan a couple years ago, and he was just like, "Men don't have like books for men." that are about the male experience and men talking about how they feel and how they operate. Like every year there's a sisterhood of the traveling pants. There's a, there's a joy luck club. There's a, you know, stuff like that. Like every year there's so much media out there that is totally aimed at like the female experience, especially in literary works. He's like, you got (laughs) what he said. He's like, you have the dead poet society and you have fight club. That's all men have (laughs) like for that kind of, philosophical what does life mean yeah and dead poets side that came out uh, a little bit before fight club too that same well, decade the movie came out in the early 90s because the book is i think the mid 80s something like right. that um but yeah i mean so that's kind of where we're coming from uh right now like in revisiting it. when was the last time you watched fight club like when was the last time you actually watched the movie um, I think I think I was still probably in my early twenties. Was the last time I revisited, like watched it fully, like straight through, and then just remembering, like, yeah, whatever. Uh, not like knowing that it was a huge thing in my childhood. Just watching it again, like, yeah, whatever. And it's like anyone who's in their mid twenties, you know, they suck. Everybody in their mid twenties is a piece of shit. <laughs> but that's part. That's part of the journey. That's part of the journey. I mean, imagine being what a, an arrogant prick that thinks he's too cool for Fight Club. Oh my I gosh. Know. No, I had the same experience. I I hit a wall with it, like because I saw it so many times. It just did not have any effect on me. I would even a couple years would go by, and I would revisit it, and I just would get nothing from it. So at this time, it's probably been close to ten years since I actually like sat and watched the movie. Because I bought the Blu-ray when it came out for its tenth anniversary in two thousand nine. I probably watched it one time since I actually purchased it again owned it a few times but so it was uh it was definitely interesting and it gave me a lot to think about in terms of in terms of the movie we're going to get into that but do you want to talk about kind of the world where this book is written because we both read the book yeah 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 no absolutely the book comes absolutely. out the book comes out in 1997 it actually mm-hmm. started as a short story 
Chuck Palahniuk was a failed writer at the time. He actually has an interesting background, and I think it actually uh, informs a lot of the way he writes. Is he's he went to school for journalism, mm-hmm. and his whole bag is to basically just be a lurker on the internet at parties or whatever, and just listen to people, listen to them tell stories, and how people tell stories, and and he kind of calls all that stuff for material for his book. So a lot of the stuff in Fight Club is autobiographical, and it's also anecdotes that he would hear at bars and parties and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, do you, what, what do you think about just like the, the late nineties, the mid to late nineties when this was, this came out? Yeah. When you think about it, like any decade, right. It really gets defined and norm, uh, really defined like near the tail end of it, which is where, you know, this movie came out. We think about the nineties in general, All right? First off, you know, Billy, Billy is POTUS of the United States, man, for a good majority of, good majority of it. You got Monica Lewinsky happening. We got, you know, Hillary scandals. You know, so much has changed since then. We had the big dot-com boom, Amazon, uh, Priceline, and plethora of other companies came by, opened up whole new opportunities. The Internet started becoming a thing. Yeah. Personal computers started becoming more uh, accessible and cheaper to everybody, the way people are consuming information. You know, the Internet is just a new way, a new social life, which if you fast forward 20 years from when that happened, you know, it's, the landscape is completely different. Even like the younger people in my place of employment, like they don't they have to go through the whole trial and error that we did, like through the bar scene or whatever. It's just yeah. all. You have apps where you don't have to do anything. You just put your stuff out there and, then, uh, and they'll reach out to you. It's just like, Damn. Okay, yeah, but anyways, it's a wild, and, world. And it's a wild, <laughs> wild internet world, right? But anyways, I, I digress. But that's just trying to you know take that into consideration. The context, of like how people got their information, is you know well, completely different. It's interesting thinking about the '90s as like chapter two of the '80s. You know, the '80s is known for kind of like this kind of shallow excessiveness, and the '90s is kind of known for uh, like. Pop psychology. Be more efficient with it. Oh, well, be more yeah. be, like pop, but the- more efficient. Be more efficient. The same thing, right? Because uh, in the '90s, we're getting into. It's funny you brought up the '80s because a lot of business process management uh, really took a turn to like automation, like in that point mm-hmm. too. So a lot of jobs are you know being replaced by you know <clears throat> other different types of information systems, processing things, so like you know new forms of analyst uh, analytical skills are now required. It's changing the, uh, the landscape drastically for white collar America. Um, I think a important thing to note throughout the '90s, a big thing that happened with that is the uh, third wave of feminism. We had the yeah. right girls, a lot of more set happening. Diane Feinstein with uh, all of her great work to the country, and then uh, the Spice Girls. Maybe not so much the Spice Girls, but I mean they were yeah, they did, were huge. How did the they Spice were huge. How did the Spice Girls not get name dropped in Fight Club the movie? Huh? I, uh, well, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm glad you brought the pop culture thing because SpongeBob SquarePants premiered uh, for the first yeah. time in the '90s. The first Star Wars prequel, well, not too, uh, not too uh, soon from uh, when uh, Fight Club premiered. I think yeah, it was and, the same year. Yeah, and uh, George W. announces his run for the Republican nomination, and uh, right around the film premiered, and you know, it'd be reminiscent of me if I did not mention anything that was going on with NASA whenever I. Whenever I do this bit, but uh, they announced it, it lost control with the Mars Climate Orbiter uh, the day before the movie premiered, and then also right after the movie premiered, 
1999 World Trade Organization Seattle riots, or also commonly known as the Battle of Seattle, yep. happened. That's right. So, yeah. So that's well, <laughs> just just a lot going on, a lot going on into that uh, uh, in the decade in general. But uh, what you brought up at that point with uh, Palinuk talking about, there isn't a lot of you know literature for men out there. Like uh, you see, what the 90s was just dominated with by some of the cop things where they just kind of rattled off at a very oh, high yeah. level. I mean, Lilith Fair was a fucking huge thing. Like, female folk singers were a big thing. Uh, it was, a lot of the pop culture stuff was very female-centric, I think, at the time in the 90s. And, like, third-wave wave feminism ended up being kind of a, like like I said, it was like the takeover of pop psychology. It was kind of, mm-hmm. like, the, the, the novel especially directly kind of comments on this idea of, like, the single-serving friend this kind of disposable culture, mm-hmm. this, this idea where nothing, everything's kind of ephemeral. That's what the nineties kind of remind is like, and honestly, like I know in historically now we're far enough away. We kind of look back on the nineties be like, that was a pretty fucking good time in America because it was so, everything was so surface level, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. movies like clueless are the biggest movies in the country. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and fight club in a weird way is Especially the book. I mean, I have to give Palinik credit. I have problems with him in his later work because I've, you know, I've can kind of consistently kept I up. I think you read it. I think you read he's done. Have I read everything he's done? No, I think he a, did. No, he, you've I, done choke. He's done that weird one. Dude, he's written like twenty-five books. Oh, man. I think I've read about like six or seven of them, like over the years, and I've they've from different time periods of his writing. The last thing I read was Fight Club Two, which was the comic book. Uh, of his newer stuff, but I was like, and then he just put out a book about just his writing process. I was like, oh, I might actually pick that up because he's actually interesting to listen to, like what informs his books and how he structures stories and stuff. Right. Um, but he's directly commenting on those things. Th- this kind of this this demasculated world, right? And where men are literally being tasked without being told to explicitly like you have to figure out a new paradigm you cannot be the traditional man anymore it's just not allowed little like boys aren't allowed to roughhouse like this is when all this stuff starts is in the 90s like the Mm -hmm. pop psychology uh this is the kind of stuff that starts coming out of universities that starts being on mtv and propaganda commercials and television like the anti-bullying campaigns and things like that which i still believe which i still believe like you know uh a guy should have a healthy fear of getting the shit kicked out of him in public, you know, just, you know, just like little social norms to just kind of, I don't know, not be an asshole. But well, there, there's, I, I, I think, you know, as, as a, as a, as a gender or as a species, there is something lost when you, when you completely cut off these primal instincts from like a, an entire gender of people and say like your, your innate feelings about how to deal with things, how to process information. is just wrong. Like it's just not, it's just not okay anymore. And it happened like that. It was like overnight. Suddenly everything is trying to reinforce this idea that like little boys are evil. Like we grew up in this time where it was like, Oh, little boys that act up in school. Oh, you got to get them on fucking Ritalin. Remember Ritalin? That was the thing in the late nineties. Every, every kid that couldn't fucking pay attention in second grade. You got drugged up. Yeah, you would get, you'd get drugged up and like sent to detention, and like there's just nobody there like that's trying to empathize or understand 
what it's like to be a little kid anymore. Like it was suddenly it was gone. It became like this kind of academic intellectual concept. Yeah. And they would theorize how to fix it without having any kind of notion about how it would actually affect real people. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think Palin right. saw that trend because I will say this just like, I think this book is like 15 years ahead of his time. Like fight club, the book comes out in the 2012 I don't know if it would have been received very well. It would probably be looked at as some sort of fascist screed or something, some misogynistic thing, which in some circles and some of the more like circles that actually Palinic runs in, like people hated this fucking book. They thought it was mm-hmm. like this evil misogynistic. Uh, and they kind of, yeah, then they missed the point, right? Cause the, what you're talking about too, is like just one of the things I picked up on, like a revisit again, at the stage in life. And like one of the major themes is just rejecting modern society, but not conforming to the means of a modern man and like how they provide and act and just romanticizing the, uh, the primal way in which, you know, we're, you know, hunters and gatherers and things like that yeah. you know, get aggression out there too. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. But if that were to be brought out again today, I, I yeah, I, well, it's a really interesting idea of like how that, how it would have been uh, received. I mean, like I, I, when I, when I watched the movie, I was like, no way the fuck this gets made post 9-11 this movie does yeah. not get made post 9-11 and then if oh. it was made and if and then if it were to come out like say say by somehow it comes out in like today holy shit like this would be a very controversial movie like very controversial because uh, well, I, I think if it were to get greenlit today then it'd probably be a little more uh with the narrative in the book leaning towards you know fascism <laughs> so, well so, the thing is the thing so, is so, so it always leads to fascism but like that whole yeah I, we well, can thing, we can do like is is the story a cautionary tale or is it completely non-judgmental and amoral that's the question i think the book is more of a cautionary tale explicitly i think the movie is a little kate more cagey about it because uh, it's just an example of like you know Joe or Jack, depending if you read the book, and Tyler Durden are the same person, but they're opposite ends of a spectrum. They're both extremists. On you know, Jack is an extreme consumer. Tyler Durden is is an extreme anti-authoritarian, anti-consumerist dude, trying to remold the world into a new enlightenment. Basically, this is why I was talking when I, I was talking about Zarathustra. Tyler's project, both in the book and in the movie, is that of Zarathustra. Let go of modern values and mores. You have to, you have to live in this. You have to. It has to be like this nihilistic perspective of like that's why the whole thing breaking down people. Nothing of this. None of this matters. None of the things you have matter. Your life doesn't fucking matter. All there is is this this greater purpose that we're groping for, that we're kind of trying to grope towards. And we're trying to bring people back to a primal level so we can rediscover ourselves, rediscover what it means to be a man. You know? Like, we almost have to destroy everything to be able to actually fulfill ourselves and have a purpose. Because there is no purpose to with a person. And this is just the crisis of humanity in general right now. How do you have a purpose amongst, uh, amongst like, an ever-growing automated world? Or... Um, you know, when the best thing you can do is like sit behind a desk and, and, and hit keys on a keyboard. Like, it doesn't feel very fulfilling to a lot of people. 
And I think Fight Club, in a weird way, is kind of addressing that in a, in a very aggressive way, you know? Because it's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to be kind of controversial, like uh, exploitative a little bit. But, but like I said, I don't know like necessarily if this is a, an endorsement. <laughs> I don't think it's an endorsement myself of the behaviors. Yeah. Like as the movie progresses, I think the movie is a little bit more cagey. Like I said, I think it's a little more vague about like the non-judgmental nature of basically what become Project Mayhem is like Black Block like Antifa, a lot of the same type of rhetoric. Actually, Palinik comes from that background. He was in something called the Society of the, uh, the, Society of the Cacophony. It's like a prank, <laughs> a prank club mm-hmm. that was basically uh, the initiation. Hey, this. Yeah, it was basically, because he's from Portland. He's from Oregon. Ah. And, uh, yeah, and he's, I think he still lives there. Um, but that was like a precursor to getting into more heavy shit. To getting into the communist stuff. To getting into socialism. Like, they'd get you when you were a kid. Like, oh, we're going to do pranks. We're going to, like, shit in bags and light them on fire. We're going we're gonna to put fucked up bumper stickers on people's cars. Shit like that, you know? Like, just like in the, mm. just like in the book. <laughs> but just like everything else, it just, you know, it progresses. You get more. You have to do more and more and more. Exactly. So, it's like Fight Club. It's like, that's what Fight Club is. Fight Club is indoctrination. It is your first step. Yep. To Tyler's new world. Like, mm-hmm. he's going to get you in with a game. Get you in with a game. Something mm-hmm. that speaks to you, something you enjoy, something you find camaraderie and brothership in. And then he slowly starts augmenting the rules as the story goes along to be more kind of nefarious, more intense. And people don't, you don't even realize that you're playing along with it. And that's another message of the movie why I think it was so, in the book too, why it was so ahead of its time. It's like, what we're seeing happen in this country right now is literally the result of people feeling like the characters in this movie, this unmoored, lost generation of people just looking for a father figure, like in a kind of abstract sense. Yeah. Somebody, yeah, to, somebody to leader. lead them and give them direction and give them purpose, make their lives feel like they mean something, even if they don't right. understand it, you know? I'm sorry, I'm right. No. no, no, it's fine, but that's definitely a thing, because like, I think the the biggest like takeaway or like more striking observation I had revisiting this was not anything that was blatantly said. It was how much it resonated with so many people in that universe. The film was taking place in, they were all fight clubs in all different cities. Everybody just flew in. So it's without blatantly saying from you, you know, that like a lot of people are balls in on this project mayhem um, uh, fight club. So he, uh, he's blatantly saying, Oh, uh, uh, by, uh, uh, at least in the book, you know, um, talking about how uh, it's set up everywhere in the, uh, the movie, just with this whole everyone, like, cult-like following, uh, like, to this message, right? And then when you have a leader constantly moving the goalposts and then just rising up, you know, yeah. it's, it's uh, like, you look at, like, today, it takes where, like, a lot of people, like, uh, maybe think about, like, Jordan Pearson. I read his, like, 12 Rules of Life, but, it, that you know, that's a guy that says very... A lot of like what he says isn't like so like profound, but it's profound in the the modern like context of society and what he's saying it in, right? So yes. there's a lot of I feel lost, and what he do, he has some like you know, sound object, uh, sound uh, statements, uh, analysis on life, you know what you should do, that uh, you know stem from you know traditional like golden rules and other things like that. And then what does he do? He makes you know. 
12 roles you know, to a better life. Hey, here's what you need to do because people need structure. Generally, people need a leader. They need yeah. people to help like, reevaluate and refocus like, their task at hand. And when you feel lost, you go to whoever's taken up in that role. For exactly. Good or for worse, right? No, there's and a so, reason why. And what's, the first thing, and, and what's the first thing like Tyler Durden does? You know, let's set up some fucking rules here. You don't talk about it, which we already fucked up. You know, you don't talk about it. You know, we're zero for two. And, you know, and then goes on to that other bullshit. But that's just. Uh, I just thought it was just like comparing it, like what uh, seeing, um, looking into that time period and what was going on in the world and uh, both the film and the book, and then today, just kind of freaky. Like you know, they're still like. How, like how accurate that is like yeah like that could actually happen in a sense where because well, okay. it's it's interesting actually palinick because I, I've, I over the years i've just like palinick so i've listened to a lot of interviews with him and stuff he's he is like somewhat of a jordan peterson fan because palinick you know palinick is a he's a he's a gay man he's married and uh but his whole thing is like the plight of the modern man like uh, the like uh, about this kind of this purpose problem that everybody seems to have. Jordan, there's a reason why Jordan Peterson fucking blew up the way he did. I mean, he blew the fuck up. He was an obscure professor in fucking in Canada. Canada. I mean, he had worked at Harvard before, but like he blew up within six months. Suddenly he's getting millions of views on his YouTube page. I mean, that YouTube page existed for a couple years before that, where he could go watch his full lectures. And it wasn't until like well, the controversy happened with the uh, the the government imposing kind of legislation about uh, word usage or whatnot, hate speech laws type of stuff. He blows up. Then he finds this other audience, just about like finding purpose and doing something with your life. That is exactly what Fight Club is speaking to. This mm -hmm. need for that. And if you are that kind of person, how easy it is to be co-opted into something that is like negative yeah like because if you're already fight if you're already tr searching for a purpose you're going to get whatever is confident whatever succinct whatever you can latch on to for better well, for worse, right that that's the, the scary thing about tyler durden is he is zarathustra if he came down from the mountain and people followed him because mm -hmm. he's saying kill god kill your father it's explicitly in the movie kill your i want to fight my dad fuck my dad mm-hmm you know, and I think this is actually an interesting juxtaposition between the book and the movie because the book is not about saying "fuck your dad," "fuck God." The book wasn't really like that. It was the book was more like, uh, "Let's annoy God," because it's better to have his like hatred than it is to be ignored. And then in the movie, they're like, "No, you kill God. We are God. Like we're yeah. gonna, we are reestablishing the rules." None of that shit matters anymore, you know. It's, it's very dark. It's very dark when you start because it's such a fun movie. It's such a fun in the book too. It's like such a fun book to read. So entertaining. It's like such a page turner. You're just like, yeah, and you can no, read it I, in like two sittings. No, I, I absolutely love the book, and uh, actually like the way it uh, it ends better. Uh, I do think the way uh, the film, and I get why they did it that way. I get why they did what they did in the film versus the book. Um, um, but uh, the book was uh, that was a great that was a great experience. I do want to get in this bit though about uh, the names that Joe or Jack used in all the support groups. Oh yeah, that's right. Didn't you say like you you looked into some of them? Yeah, no, I uh, well, I looked into all of them. So it's like well, Travis. Well, yeah. 
in the movie though, isn't yeah? What is it? <laughs> you're gonna say Travis Bickle? <laughs> Who? Oh fuck! Who? Taxi Taxi Driver. Who? <laughs> no, it's so, I, I, I never watched Taxi Driver. Have you never seen Taxi Driver? Oh, we got some. We got, we got this. Is gonna be like next year. We'll get around to it, but we'll do it. Well, is this uh, is this uh, my homework assignment for next year? We already have too many things on the plate already. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, so are you? Did you get the names from from the movie or from the book? Because I can't remember. Was it, were they in the book? No. So here's the thing: in the book, and I'm sure somebody. Will- Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, they, he just uh, Joe, the narrator, would mention never using the same name. But in the uh, in the book, I mean, in the movie, he had uh, you know three different names that you see through here, and um, Marla also recaps um, the yeah. names and what she uses, um, and what she, you know the bus cuts out the scene, so he never like you know confirms or denies it, like any of them, right? Yeah. But uh, no, it's like Travis, Cornelius, and Rupert. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. I went down a little rabbit hole with this one, with these names, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, may or may not have anything to do with it. This may be a whole room two thirty-seven, uh, you know, moment for me, but I had fun. I'm going to do it. You ready? Let's roll. Travis. Oh, I didn't care if you're ready or not. I'm just going to go. <laughs> Travis. First name used. I tried looking up like all notable people named Travis, but fuck, dude. Too many athletes. Too many musicians. It's got to be. It's got to uh, be based on the guy from Blink One Eighty Two, right? Uh, well, Travis, but, uh, you know, I thought about that. It's like only 20 years old when the film came out. But, you know, obviously, I'm doing the scope and looking at Palinik's age and see, like, who could have, like, influenced him or the uh, writer. I wrote his name down. Fuck. What's his name? Which the Screenwriter. Screenwriter is uh, Jim Ools. Yeah. Someone that would, uh, would have been around um, long enough to have influenced, like, either one of them, right? Like, to go up there. So... I didn't. There's so many people with uh, uh, Travis, and I just went with the literal meaning of that, which means uh, literally to transfer or to cross. Right? It was originally given to like you know toll keepers in France. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So just that means something like that. All right. So the second one, Cornelius, named Jews. Same same methodology. Looking for people that could have influenced that. So it came across. Uh, I found Cornelius Castoriadis, a Greek French philosopher whose influential work on social institutions and activist circles. He was the part of the Athenian communist youth. And I'm just going to, I'm going to read this whole blurb out. Uh, one of Castoriadis's many important contributions to social theory was the idea that social change involves radical discontinues that cannot be understood in terms of any detrimental causes or presented a, presented a sequence of events. Changes emerge through the social imagery without strict determination, but in order to be socially recognized, it must be instituted as a revolution. Uh, this guy uh, really into uh, the the Greek concept of you know imagery and really interesting cat to look into. Uh, uh, he was part of something called like the Libertarian Socialist, which I thought was kind of a oxymoron. I don't know, but like... apparently that, that 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 was that was like a thing. So yeah, he did that. Cornelius, that's name number two. All right. Rupert, the third name used. Okay? And Rupert uh, is also the name used when uh, he meets Marla and when he fantasizes about Marla. I'll get into it right after that, but Rupert is the third name used. So I looked at this, and then I found, I decided to pick uh, an English poet 
Uh, no, oh shit. How did I not write his last name down? Rupert Brooke. Rupert Brooke. An English poet known for his idealistic war sonnets. So, real quick, when we talk about partying like a European, I'm talking about this guy. All right. Yeah. Is he like the uh, the yeah, libertine? Uh, he's. Uh, oh God. Uh, was it? He. <laughs> five of his most notable flings. They has all have their own Wikipedia pages and contributions <laughs> like the history. All right. This guy was insane. Like it just for fun, just like. Like a like Google him like later like okay. a very, very short life but like uh, but what's more fun about him is uh, click on the hyperlinks of like his previous flanks that he had yeah. uh, is the you know that uh, that Mick poet W B Yeats described him as the most handsome young man in England so uh, <laughs> you got it. so uh, war vet um, and well he signed to be the British Navy and all that good stuff and then. Um, uh, around the 19, uh, 1910s. So, Brooks suffered a severe emotional crisis in 1912 caused by sexual confusion. He was bisexual. And jealousy resulted in the breakdown of his long-term long -term relationship with Ka Cox. Now, she started a, a neo-paganism unit and then got very involved in like feminist social circles for, at the time, completely radically thinking about, you know, you know, the 1910s, okay? Uh, so she was like his Marla Singer yeah. uh, in real life. Um, if Marla came from an upscale background, but the same type of nihilism, or just, you know, like there's a lot of similarities, just like reading like her background, which is involved with like uh, Tim Marla uh, in that, uh, in that regard. So, so just kind of look at that. I just want to, okay, Travis, Cornelius, and then Rupert as we're like transitioning through the film, just like anything we're going in, you're, you're involved in. So Travis is, you know, the cross transfers into Cornelius. So uh, Travis is the thought he's crossing the Cornelius, you know, the radical that's given him the construct for, you know, ideas, what to do. And then Rupert is the physical embodiment of the journey to like self-actualization. Eventually. Yeah. Dies. Humanism. Yeah. And just eventually just dies. Okay. And so I was just kind of, looking at that and and like you know we're fresh off uh kubrick shit so we're looking you know i'm looking at you know a lot of things and you know yeah. sometimes if, if it's not kubrick you can hit a dead end really fast and I almost stopped right away with you know the name travis i'm like I'm the fucking <laughs> like how do you narrow down travis but i just stopped at the like the literal sense of that so out maybe there could have been somebody influential named travis that could have influenced you know either the, um both the writers but i just i just thought uh cornelius was I, I just thought, like, man, that was too, that definitely would have, you know, like, Pally, uh, Chuck would have definitely known, you know, about him, like, through his education, being a journalist and like, whatnot, like, that just would have, it seems like something that would have been on his radar. Yeah. Uh, especially, especially with the latter, with, uh, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, Rupert. So, and what's interesting about Rupert, when he uses the name Rupert, you know, is when he meets Marla for the first time. Yeah. And then... When he goes down and then remember they're, they're closing their eyes and they're thinking about his power animal. And then what's his power animal in the film? A penguin. Goddamn right. It's a penguin. Why is it a penguin? Why is it a penguin? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know he's, it's, you know, Tyler's wearing a penguin shirt the first time they meet and then slide. Let it slide off your back, but I don't know specifically. 
Tyler's wearing a penguin shirt when the first time he No, not Tyler. not the first time they meet, actually the first time they fight. When they're about to when they're at the bar. He's got penguins on one of his shirts. They're at the Really? I think I, so. I gotta go back I gotta go back and look at that. So I went um Tyler actually is his power animal. That's kind of like what it's implying, but well, he is oh. his own power animal. He is the star child. It all makes sense. I'm sure. Well, then he sees, uh, you know, Marla, or like replace his uh, power animal, and like one of those hallucinate or media uh, meditation attempts he tries going through, right? Yeah, but the penguin symbolizes the penguin symbolism indicates purpose and order. It represents good manners and right conduct, and it reminds you to follow the rules when no one else is looking. It's about determination, patience, and endurance. It's calls for self-discipline, determination, so that you can achieve your goals. The meaning of the penguin also teaches you about having grace when it comes to your actions and emotions. You possess the strength and fortitude, live and overcome struggles. See, no, that, blah, 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 blah. To me, that, that, so, feels, that feels like, cause isn't it the same in the book, right? The power animal yeah. is the penguin in the book, right? I, I feel I, like after you just read that, I was like, I bet you Palinik knew that, and he's like gaslighting, me. <laughs> yeah, kind of gaslighting you a little bit, yeah. because that's who that's who the narrator is supposed to be, you know, like that's like this vision of himself that he has, this self-important, well put together guy, like when you first kind of meet him when he first, or not well put together, that's the wrong way to put it, but like just some sort of he doesn't think he's a bad person really. Good manners and right conduct. Right, that's what he's trying to yeah. form himself to be. Right, and he yeah. goes in there, and then it eventually gets replaced by you know Marla in there, and then you point man, but then that's a good. Uh, I'm sorry because I didn't know that he, that Tyler Durham was wearing it the first time that they fought. Huh. I, I believe so. Like, don't quote me on that, but I know that sometime in the first meeting of Tyler, like during that section, he is wearing a penguin shirt. He's got penguins on, like a penguin pattern on his shirt. Okay. Oh yeah. It's got layers, you know. I'll be. I'll say this: if I were to like have a modern analog for Mr. Kubrick, uh, Fincher would be one of those people. It's Fincher and Paul Thomas Anderson, only people that even come remotely close. Fincher is the same kind of weird, meticulous, his hands are on fucking everything kind of guy. Right. You know. Right. Um. So that's what I get, kind of like looking in uh, to the names uh, of maybe something. I think static. you, have, I think you have found something that may be a little room two three seven, but it's still interesting, and it's still cool. Like, see, that's what I love about doing this stuff, dude. Like, you fucking gives you opens the door to like I get to learn a little something. Now you actually know who these people are. Everybody does now. Anybody that listens to this podcast now knows who those people are. And yeah. they can go look into themselves. They've learned a little bit something about life. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> yeah. You need to check out Rupert Brooke. Guy I'm was, going to. He, I'm he, going he to. partied like a European. Check out Rupert Brooke and check out all of his flings. Even yeah. Even when yeah, he was on a... What's that? I was going to say, I wish I didn't have my midlife crisis when I was 25 because I'd be fucking... I'd be almost ready. <laughs> get into that Rupert Brooke lifestyle. Uh, <laughs> just full-on hedonism. Come get me. <laughs> I've been calling Paul at four in the morning. Come get me, buddy. I need a Come ride. Get me. Come like get me. Like when we were kids. I need a ride. Although I don't think we ever really did that to each other. Other people used to do that to you, though. <laughs> I was good boy Sean. I'm good boy Sean. Like, what are we going to do? I'm the best. <laughs> I would never do that to my good friend Paul. 
No, oh, I'm sorry, Big no. Paul. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you, you want to just start talking about like formally talk about the movie, and we can just kind sure. of go back and forth about what like the book and the movie while we have this that conversation. I just gotta say right off the top, okay? I think uh, Jim Ools is a fucking saint. He worked a miracle, and he did the impossible here. Okay, he made what may be the best adaptation of any book ever. Uh it's fucking insane. It it maintains yeah. this literary spirit, but is also incredibly cinematic. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like that's when I like even like go revisiting it now. I still was just like, what the fuck else is like this? This is so fucking its own thing. It does not conform. To, I guess just like the spirit of of the characters in the in the movie it does not conform to any type of structure or. Uh, I mean, people always say like VO is a no-no in movies, but it's so important to this movie. I mean, everything just works. I think I am in the camp of thinking that the movie actually elevates the book. It actually took the kind of because the book is a little scattershot. You know, it's a little almost feels like stream of consciousness, right? Like it's it's it jumps back and forth in time. Uh, you know, things that happen in the beginning of this movie happen, you find out at the end of the book. You know what I mean? So the structure that he put this in and made the, this linear narrative and fucking just nailed it. Just fucking nailed it. And Fincher, obviously. I mean, holy shit. Visualizing the... Like, literally visualizing the concepts from the book. Like, making visual right. representations of it that you immediately understand. Right. It's It's, it's honestly like... Rewatching this made me be like, Fight Club is back on the top ten for me. Yeah, I, no, the style, the stylistic aspects of the film did not uh, they aged well. It was still incredibly fun movie to watch, and then just kind of watching it again, this ripe old age of thirty four with a new sense of empathy and everything, just have a better understanding of the story. It was definitely, definitely a good experience to watch it again. So. Um, I look back at my twenty-five-year-old uh, self, and you know, would slap it and say, "It's not poo-pooing on this movie. You don't know shit yet." But no, but he did capture just onto your note, though. Like he did capture so much, like in the book. I mean, you could you could pick apart like semantics, you know, like why Jack versus Joe, or like you know, uh, why you know why did uh, Joe fight his boss when Tyler got all the money from you know the uh, film editors' union. Which in the book he had like a weird obsession of uh or a fear of getting uh, uh turned into like the filmmakers union. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's just like just like a weird weird thing. But like no, I just uh, uh he did the movie is more succinct and uh, well, it has a definitely powerful punch. But 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 it's, it's about, like, but it still distills everything from the book, like it distills it, like it's using lines that are from Jack's narration and then they put it in people's mouths in places and it makes like Tyler's whole fucking speech about uh uh you know like we were promised we would be movie stars and and rock stars and we and we and we won't and we're slowly figuring that that fact out uh like that's from like later in the book and that's a piece of narration that's not even like somebody doesn't even say that like right. but this Jim Wools just was able to reconfigure everything in a way that just like fucking sings man like because i think like you know the whole thing with space like going just talking about like the 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 when he beats the shit out of himself in his boss's office it is so much more effective 
in the movie than in the book. Like, you're actually, you actually don't, I think it tracks the process of radicalization way better in the movie than it does in the book. Um, I think in the book, it just kind of feels like, or the Raymond K. Hessel scene, the fucking Korean kid outside of the, the gas station. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the book, that's, that's the narrator. That's Joe, that's Jack. Mm-hmm. He's the one, he's the one doing it in the movie is Tyler. Also, yeah. Uh, another scene where they they flipped uh, they put Tyler in the movie like the scene on the highway when they're driving. Yeah, that was that, not in the book. That's well, it's in the book, but it's a mechanic. It's just the guy from Project Mayhem, you know. And it was funny. Uh, I guess when Jim Ulls and David Fincher were talking to Chuck Palahniuk, they're like, "Why didn't you have Tyler do that?" He's like, "You know what? That's a great fucking idea. I don't know why I didn't." <laughs> <laughs> But, okay, all right, all right, all right. Getting a little ahead of ourselves here. We start inside of a brain. (laughs) No, what I want to say, though, like, I love the way the movie starts. I love that credit sequence. I love the the almost classical music, and then the Dust Brothers do that spin thing. And then it's just like this loud, abrasive fucking techno beat that is fucking rad as fuck. Mm -hmm. I actually would just listen to that uh, just on its own after I watched the movie, I was like, this is the coolest shit ever. I don't know why, but it just like immediately hit me. And it sets the tone for the movie you're going to watch. Like it mm-hmm. so perfectly encapsulates like the tone and the spirit of what's going to happen. This yeah. chaos. Yeah, no, you're just tracking all the synopsis in the brain firing off that eventually transitions to a sweaty forehead to the barrel of the gun. Yeah. And then, boom. It's just beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful beginning. Beautiful beginning. But does that music, so does that, does that music get you fucking jacked, though? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I had a, actually, I was watching, <laughs> I started the movie because uh, it was before my kid went to bed. Uh, my kid's three years old. And we were watching it in the living room, and uh, that music came on, and he literally just stood up and started going like this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, we're fucked. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, but like it was, it's so, so perfect. It's so fucking perfect. Like I, I couldn't think of a better way to start that movie. But anyways, I'm sorry. And I'm gonna cut you off a bunch, Paul. You gotta, you gotta just wrangle, wrangle this old man in, okay? <laughs> he, I talk to a three year old most of the time. Like so, when I do this, it's like word vomit. I just like. So like so okay so we go out of the brain we enter the first scene. One of the notes I wrote I was like, uh, this movie probably has the best use of voiceover maybe ever. Like we were talking about just the the idea of like maintaining that literary sense because it feels like the book like right away. Mm-hmm. That was one of the cool things like rewatching it. You're like, wow, this is so much the book, right? And like, there's so many like you know, and I understand we could be nitpicky, and there's like tangents in the book that aren't in the movie. Uh, they they cook Marla Singer's mother down into fat, like so they that, can. Oh my god! So yeah. so so that they can they can make soap out of her, which honestly, is fine that it's not there. It's nice flavor in the book, but it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't really matter. It's just there to be kind of shocking, right? You know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I. Uh, 
his relationship uh, like uh, with Tyler is longer in the book, like where he's more aware of him, like sooner. Uh, yes, in yeah. the novel, and then, like, uh, and he's more aware that uh, that Tyler, Darren, and Joe are the same person for longer uh, in the books than they are in the film, and then has a whole bunch of you know conversations with uh, Marla about it, and there's you find a lot more about like Marla and like her situation, and then he's you know, like Joe, the narrator, he still has like a relationship with uh, like his dad, like reading through the novel, but like in the movie, you think it's like, it's all done. So I mean, it's a little thing like, but like we were saying earlier, the movie's a lot more like succinct and just gets right to that cuts out all the fat, no pun intended. Well, it cuts out the fat, but it represents the same ideas like visually. Like I, like you got to give it to Fincher here. I mean, this guy fucking constructed yeah. something that is so, it's so stacked with information. Everything is stacked, but it never feels like boring exposition. It never feels like that. It just flows, just works. Like from the get, yeah. I, I would. Well, I will say this. I think people would know would know whether they were able to like like this movie or vibe with it within about five minutes, maybe ten. Like you're gonna know whether or not this is a movie for you. <laughs> you're gonna check out. Actually, I got a Snapchat from your wife. <laughs> she did not she did not care for fight club uh, <laughs> no just like the other ones but like, hey you want to watch it for me she's like why why why, why can't you guys fight club it's like why can't you guys watch something when you like go like we're not going to watch Peter Burr and falcon and talk about it all right Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah no <laughs> Well, maybe. I don't know. Maybe we will. I don't know. Someday. Someday. we got to let Peanut Butter Falcon grow and mature and be out there in the world for a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Just like your glass of 1976. Let it airy a little bit. 1976? 17, 17, Holy shit, dude. My, there's a humble water filter salesman from Austin, Texas, okay? And he's all about the spirit of this, guys. Okay? He's all about the spirit of this. If you get that joke, you get it. If you don't, you don't. That's not my problem. I don't explain jokes. I'm done explaining jokes to people. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like, you know what I, I love the uh, about this movie is also the it's it's great use of montage because it it will take like whole sections and chapters of the book and do it in like two minutes. Especially like you know Jack looking for the self help groups. That's like that's kind of a thing that's spread out through the book. Because, you know, it keeps jumping back and forth. Right. And in the movie, it just does it in, like, literally two minutes. Yeah. That shit does. Yeah, he hops in there, he grabs the whole, uh, the whole pamphlet and just just completely, like you said, just montages on those different things. And just kind of, like, uh, goes into the other theme, like, the, uh, the emotional exploitation mm-hmm. of everything, right? Which kind of gradually uh, escalates in this. I can't just show up to, you know, to circular cancer based off of, you know, the doctor's, you know, kind of facetious, you know, recommendation. Yeah, you want to see pain? You know, I mean, you know, kind of like what a dad would do to somebody. Like, oh, oh you're Which, hungry. Oh, you're hungry. Let me show you. Wait, wait for the commercial for 75 cents a day, kids. Hey, let's show exactly, you that. That's yeah. what hunger looks like, right? Which so I, I, take I, I love the doctor's line reading in the movie, too, because he's like, because it's so, like, flat. <laughs> It's like, you want to know what real pain is? Go down to Firth, Massachusetts on the first Thursday of every month. Yep. Which is also the first time you see that flash of Tyler pop up yes. next to him. Yes, it is. Yeah. 
Foreshadowing. Boom. I call you a hack, but I love you, Fincher. I love you, baby. Call me sometime. <laughs> Talk about Zodiac, one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, <laughs> have you ever seen Zodiac, Paul? I saw it a while ago. That's the one with uh, um, Spider-Man. No, not Spider-Man. Fucking Jake Gyllenhaal. What the fuck yeah. is Spider-Man? I mean, what the fuck is he looks somebody? just they, they all look alike. They all look alike. All, all, all the these look alike. all these pretty white guys, they just look they just look the same to me. Um I don't know, like so like during this whole sequence and like Jack like engaging with like being a being a poser at these self help groups. I thought that there's an interesting observation about the nature of like being paid attention to. And I think this is something everybody feels in their life. This idea, like, the more problems you have, the more fucked up you are. Everybody gets in a pissing contest about it. Like, we don't have real conversations about it. We just say, like, oh, well, I understand you have, like, brain cancer, but <laughs> my dog died. Like, you know, that's how, that's, like, just how petty people are. And, right. like, because it's all this, this, I think, this, this guttural need for validation of your, like, existence, you know? Yeah. And uh, and the pain of not having that. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, can I do this? I mean, this is an extreme example, obviously. It's like kind of a metaphor and abstraction. But I was like, have I engaged in this behavior before? I think I probably have. Because there's this idea of like, in just like you said, we were talking about the names earlier, right? He like has all, he's a different person for every group he goes to. There's power in, in being a new guy and being anonymous, not anybody knowing you. And as Paul and I know, we've moved around a lot and we've done different jobs and that's a new set of people and stuff. You kind of get to reinvent yourself every time. And there's like an addictive quality to that. It's called sociopathy. <laughs> well, in an art form, because you get to perfect your, uh, your intro stories better each time. Yeah, like, how do I be the best me? You know, like, how how am I going to present the best the best version of me? And when I when I watched the movie this time, I completely like connected with that this idea of of LARPing, emotional LARPing. I think it's something that starts when you're a teenager, and you just I'm so happy now. I'm like at this age now. I just I can't be bothered, but. Which sounds sad because I'm only 33, but like I can't be bothered to emotionally LARP anymore. I'm like, this is just who I am. I can't. Like, this is too much work. <laughs> but like, uh, but I remember doing that when I was younger. Not maybe consciously, but subconsciously, because right. you you know you you fall into a new group. There's like mm -hmm. expectations. There's pressures. There's a concept of who they think you are and who you really are. I remember that mm -hmm. from being in a band. You know, like. Is very different. I'm, you know, I'm a fucking quiet weirdo, and uh, and I don't like some people didn't understand that, so they'd approach me and thinking I was the person that I was on stage, and I'm like, not really. I'm pretty lame. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this this crust this crust punk chick. I'll never forget her. This crust punk chick. She came up to me. She kisses me on the lips. She says, "You're different." Like <laughs> then when you are on stage, I was like, "Yeah, have a good Kinda night." How it works. Kinda <laughs> how it works. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know if like that's something you picked up on at all. I don't know. It was just something that kind of like I was did not expect to like kind of 
read that into the scenario. And I was like watching. I was like, wow, wow. This makes me feel real sad. <laughs> I like seriously. You know what's weird? I, I I know. I just asked you a question and cut you off. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I was actually very moved by Fight Club. Being a 33-year-old man, I found it like a very like moving, touching movie, in like a very weird way, where I understood it. Like I, I have enough road behind me now that I can actually understand what it's talking about. Because when I watched it a hundred times when I was a teenager, I did not have the life experience to understand Fight Club. I did not I had not sunk to the actual depths of despair. And gone through depression or whatever to understand what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. Suffered loss, had a shitty job, dealt with people yeah. that directly affected your money. Like, yeah, no. It was just... Mm. It, it's not fair. But but again, you know, we're just stupid teenagers at the surface level. Like, what are you watching? You know, a, literally a fight club and, you know, a project mayhem. And all that's like sexy attractive at the surface level, you know, for a kid. And then you rewatch it again at, you know, 10 years later from that and just be like, oh man, this guy's a bunch of fucking pussies. <laughs> you only know what, you man, what a man is? Oh, man, fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> I'm awesome. I'm Paul, awesome. Paul literally pulled his <laughs> dick out at the screen. He pulled sure his did. dick out and he said, this sure is what did. it is, boys. Sure did. And made another baby. Because that's what I do. Here's what five, I did. Here's five frames did. of cocks for you, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Fuck you, Fincher. You just want to do one second? I got you for a whole, whole premiere. But anyways, and then just get, getting humbled through, like, later in life with experience in life and everything, too. I had that same experience, Sean. Just looking back then, like, like I get that. I've worked in places where I was in a literal cubicle farm. Yeah. You literally yeah. get what they're talking the white-collar slave shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but his whole like, uh, especially in the book, but when they talk about it with Fincher, like you know, no one really wants to make eye contact, no one really cares, and just want talks, and you just get to this, uh, like, oh, how, you know, how, how are things going, you know? And, and I've told you in previous conversations, people like, oh, did you have a good weekend? Like, no, no, it was terrible. But say not like in that room, like, no, no, it was pretty terrible, yeah. And then just see if they'll pick up on it, and like, then they won't. Nope. <laughs> so, just nope. Yeah. I'll ignore it. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, it's a funny parallel. Yeah. The thing that one of the things that inspired Palinik to write the first, the original seven-page short story or whatever, was that he got in a fight up in the woods in Oregon during like a Fourth of July weekend or something. Had a black eye, and he was a blue-collar dude, like an analyst mm-hmm. guy. That's what he got a job at at a, at a college, and not a single person asked him about his black eye. And he was like, "Oh, isn't that interesting?" because nobody in that environment like you're trying like it's so hard as a human being like you have to do something for a job you have to find a way to survive but you also like want to connect with people and like you want to have and you want them to be real you don't want them to be ephemeral or bullshit or whatever. You just don't. No, exactly. You're sitting next to these people. You're with these people more than you are with the ones you actually love or give a shit about. Yes. Right? You spend yeah. more time with these people than you do with anybody. And uh, what you're doing with these people than anything that you want to do, Like, period. This is what you're doing for money. This is what you're doing to keep you know, uh, pressing on. And so, yeah, it makes sense. It's only you that want to have that connection, but it's just – it's just a grind, and it just just does not happen. Well, there's this. I think, there's this fear of the personal, 
like if you personally invest in somebody and then you don't get along with them at work or or not get not get along with them but if something happens at work that like kind of gets in between like your personal relationships it can be a problem right like it, it can it can be when people are too close or they they're too friendly or whatever then you have like preference and sometimes it can go bad so i think people have that in their heads all the time when they're working with people especially when yeah. you especially when yeah. you get like managerial yeah. positions and you're well, just trying to keep it try to keep it separate yeah, i get that but there's like you know just because i want to like have a more like in-depth conversation about like what's going on in the world or you know you know just about you me. personally doesn't mean i want you to come over and you know be my kid's godfather you know what i mean so i Oh, he's a cool guy. He's a cool guy, but I wouldn't let him hang out with my kids. You know what I mean? I mean he's a cool. He's okay. He's good for. He's good for a laugh. But, uh, hey, you're talking about that Hal Nine Thousand? Yeah, yeah. Talk about that no. Hal Nine Thousand, baby. Talk about that. You know, at the end of the day, Paul, we're all meatloaf. You know, we're all meatloaf and Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah, the most. The most you reflect on glory days. You, you rise and fall, then you reconnect with you know. Uh, you get a new second win in a your third chapter in life. And then it tragically ends with some bullshit. Yeah, we're all meatloaf. <laughs> Just constant failures with hey, but at least he had he had a good run before he went down, right? Not everyone gets a good run. So I guess we're not all meatloaf. Wait, wait, did Meatloaf die? Yeah. Oh, did Robert you know? Paulson. Oh, Robert Paulson. Okay. Oh, shut up. You scared me. You scared me. <laughs> I thought the mean man was dead. No, but uh, you know, I I found this this watch like how much I liked Bob, and like how much like great casting Meatloaf was because this is such a he's trying so hard because he's not a great actor, so he's trying so hard. There's such an earnestness there, like in his when he's when he's like working with like good great actors, mm-hmm. and 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 it actually informed and made the character better and more sincere. Like you like Bob. Right away, you like Bob. It's okay, Cornelius. <laughs> Fucking oh my god! And that's another thing about Fight Club. It is a it is one of the funniest movies ever. Like it is such a funny movie, in like this very personal, dark way. It's always. It, I I was laughing the whole time I was watching the movie. There's so many like little weird dark jokes. You just can't. I don't know how you can't. You can't help but like find it funny. I guess maybe it's the fucked up. Thing. I don't know. Maybe it's the New Englander thing. I feel like New yeah. Englanders have like this very weird. Well, what happens? Even if it's you, we gotta get their balls. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the way it goes, you know. That's the project, yeah, baby. Yeah, uh, what did you think about Marla in the movie as opposed to the book? Did you think there was a significant difference? Did you like her at, in either iteration? Um, yeah, I liked her in the movie. Didn't like her in the book. So in the movie, it's and like she really serves a um, purpose uh, for the story. They're better in the book. You, you get to know it a little bit much, and you're like, you know what? I, oh God, come on, Joe, you can do better than that. That's bad news right there. Movie, totally bad news. But there's enough. Uh, ambiguity and like you know like eh, well maybe i don't know i think I once know. you once you know what's going on like you start feeling bad for her like she's you know as a man who is into weird girls that are a little weird that are a little fucked up mm. i married one um 
uh, Marla Singer, like in the movie, I think is a much more like sympathetic character. In the book, she's a little bit more one note. She feels more like plot function, yeah. like a mechanical piece of the story. I think a lot of credit is due to Helena Bonham, Bonham Carter. I think she actually yeah. brings like kind of a, a real life to that character. That is kind of a thankless role. It could be a thankless role in the wrong hands, but I think she actually like, kind of like embraced it and took the ball and ran with it. Um, well, his whole reveal when, you know, Jack, because I'm talking about the movie, realizes, you know, what's happening here. Like, she's a big part of that. And there's a great yeah. support role. I in love too. her. her in, in the book, it's just kind of like, you know, uh, okay. It's you know, like you find out before, like, that whole interaction. And so, like, and like, you know, reviewing the film again and just like seeing the reactions with, you know, Marla in the film, like with Jack. I mean, it was uh, so good. She's what, so good. Which I think is what, like, uh, the movie helps by making it linear. Like making it like there's an arc in the movie that is linear, and Marla is part of that linear arc. And I think that actually is helped by that because it's not like some sort of mystery that you come back to later. Because in the book, the book is very stream of consciousness. It's very like I don't want to say it's all over the place because Palinik was able to pull it off in the end, and it kind of makes a cohesive whole. But as you're reading it, it is just feels like scattered thoughts. At times, and Marla, I think, suffers because of that. She doesn't feel, ever feel like a, a fully fleshed out character. But in the movie, being more linear, I think, actually allows her to develop and grow in a way that feels impactful, meaningful, whatever you want to say. No, no, I, to- I totally get that. Totally get that. I'll say this I love her introduction. Her introduction is one of the great movie introductions of like a femme fatale type character and uh, she does not have to cancer <laughs> <laughs> edward norton's like performance oh which we haven't even talked about that edward norton and brad pitt are the maybe the one of the best things brad pitt's ever done like i i like brad pitt but he's like a movie star like he doesn't have very much range i think i would say fight club I guess you never watched Glorious Bastards. I guess you never saw California, buddy. Seven? Did you ever see Seven? Go fuck yourself. He's he's good at that, too. What's in the box? What's in the box? Great Brad Pitt performances. Fight Club. Mm -hmm. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward, whatever his name was. (laughs) Um, Such a long title. Robert Ford, I think. It doesn't fucking matter. Uh, Ad, Ad Astra, great performance in Ad Astra. Very subdued performance, low-key performance, very good. And then I would say uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, actually. He's really good in that. But he's like a movie star guy. Like, you don't expect much from Brad Pitt for some reason. Like, I think he gets away with murder. Yeah. Even his bad performances are good performances because you like Brad Pitt. But right. in Fight Club this feels like he embodies this role like this feels like him (laughs) maybe you know what i mean like this i think that's really a big part of the casting like who would you fantasize yourself to be if you wanted to be somebody and then you take yourself back into the 90s well you don't actually you you know who the studio is actually thinking about russell crowe and this would have been right off of L.A. Confidential. It would have been before Gladiator. 
And that's a- honestly what actually ended up being the thing was that, uh, as the legend goes, David Fincher tried to buy the rights to this book himself. He wanted to uh, get the rights to it. He'd only done two movies at the time. He had done Alien 3, which was a huge fiasco with Fox. It was like a huge problem for him. He fucking hated working on it. The studio came in and fucked with everything. Right. Then they, they released their own like studio cut of the movie. It was not happy. Then he makes seven. Gets a little bit of clout. People start paying attention. Like, oh, this David Venture guy is a serious. He's the real yeah. deal. So he tries to buy the book uh, for Fight Club, buy the manuscript, the rights to the manuscript for to write a script, and uh, 20th Century Fox undercut like comes in and swoops in and gives bids higher basically and gets the book. So what David Fincher has to do, like Fox is trying to cast, like Matt Damon was was like considered for the Edward Norton role at one point, uh, a few other actors I can't remember exactly, but kind of those types, and uh, Edward uh, David Fincher has to come in. He he hired with his own money. He hired Jim Wools. He cast the movie. He had storyboards drawn up. So he had a script, storyboards, and a cast. And he went to the head of the studio, Laura Ziskin, and he gave her this giant tome and said, this is what we want to do. Uh, you have three days to decide whether or not you want to do our version of the movie. Very Damn. ballsy move for the dude, right? Yeah. And somehow... Somehow, it ended up happening. But that's that is the story be, behind how he gets there. Um, because this could have so been a that, that proposal had Russell Crowe. No, that I, no, I, no, I no. lost you on the like where where no, no, like, no, no, the, the studio was looking for things. Oh, the studio like, wanted Crowe. They were saying. before David Fincher made his proposal because they bought the book first. Uh, oh, okay. out, out from under David Fincher, they were looking at Russell Crowe and Matt Damon. And wow. I don't. And, and Danny Boyle as a director was floated around. Danny Boyle, oh. the director of Trainspotting. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, There's a couple other guys in there. I can't remember exactly, but it was those those types of people. Those like you know, up and coming '90s guys. Right. And uh, David Fincher came in with a whole proposal. He just had it all laid out. This is how we're going to make this movie. And uh, he gave a budget, and a schedule, and everything. Right. And then he gave them three days to decide. Which was a ballsy move. He had not done shit. He had done two movies at the time. He had the Aerospace, uh, Aerospace, Aerosmith uh, music video. Oh, James that's right. Got you know? <laughs> and then in between Fight Club and Seven, he makes The Game, which is a really underrated movie. I love The Game with Michael Douglas. You've yeah. seen The Game. You've seen The Game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's Venture. That's Fincher, baby. Um, Fincher, interesting. It just could have been. I stopped like listen to what you said after I thought like in our same reality there could have been a Fight Club where it was directed by Danny Boyle, played by Russell Crowe and Matt Damon. Like, <laughs> well, how does that work? Like, how does that play out? Like now, man. <laughs> I think you get a much more commercial movie that yeah. is, like not as. Openly subversive. I'm not saying it would be good, but I'm not. I'm not denying the fact that I would totally watch that shit. I would watch it as a curiosity, of course. Yeah. Although Danny Boyle, I like Danny Boyle. 
Like, it's like, I can maybe trust Danny Boyle to do something interesting with this material. I mean, if you fucking watch Train Spotting. Dog Shoulder? Dog Soldier? That's not Dog Soldier. That's yeah, was that him? Well, no. <laughs> Danny Boyle didn't direct Dog Soldiers. Well, fuck. Hold on, let me let me hold, help you out here. It is Neil Marshall that directed Dog Soldiers. He also directed The Descent, Centurion, a bunch of episodes of Game of Thrones. There we go. Same difference. Same difference. <laughs> okay, so now that we're moving along. So Fight Club, they start a Fight Club. I mean, that scene. The scene in the... like. The whole movie, the whole philosophy of the movie is like laid out in the bar scene when uh, Tyler and, and Jack first hang out. Like the whole anti-consumerism rant. Yep. This whole like, we deny our base natures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when you start really exploring into that whole, like, you know, because whole, like what's happening leading up to it, you just hear, you know, Jack's narration about how, like, I consume everything. This is what I love. I want, but it's obviously hollow and it's not doing anything. And I'm constantly daydreaming about, you know, dying. I want this plane to like crash. Life insurance pays off triple when that happens. And then first time they actually sync up and apparently we're going to penguin on a shirt. Cause that's the first time they fight was in that scene. But, uh, like, yeah, they just starts exploring, like, you know, those ideas. Yeah, I say never be perfect. I say throw away all your shit, you know, whatever, like, Tyler says. And it's just kind of, like, leads right up into that. It's Zarathustra coming down from the mountain, my friend. It's here. <laughs> I mean, like, and I remember watching this when I was a kid. I, it was just the coolest speech ever. I don't know, like, I don't. It's so hard to separate myself from this movie sometimes because it, it kind of informed a lot of, of my thinking growing up without me realizing it. You know, it's just almost through osmosis because I watched it so many times. You know, I listened to Tyler Durden preach so many times that, like, that, that first rant in the bar succinctly kind of describes the entire movie. And I remember thinking about that all the time uh, when I was a kid. Like, ah, fuck this. This is fucking what normal people do. Like, fuck, this is fucking stupid. Like, yeah. kind of put the, it planted that seed in me, you know? Oh, you like this music? Ah, oh, that music's fucking stupid. Like, that's fucking, that's this pablum. That's, that's for babies. Yeah, well, it, it planted that seed to just get to that mindset where, you know, everything sucks until it's proven not to suck, right? Like, well, everything else. And then, and, and, and you're trying to, then you, and then Paul's trying to start fight clubs during camping trips. Yeah, well, you know, you know, like I said, you know, you shouldn't play with guns when you're a kid, right? You shouldn't watch very influential things talking about, you know, very real themes and uh, things to do with the you know, male psyche when you're that young as well. Because what did we do, Sean? <laughs> well, we basically, uh, I don't know if we, we we never started a fight club per se, but we definitely like joked around about it and definitely like a few times like teetered on doing fight club things. And also, before we watched this movie, though, both of us kind of primed a little bit for anarchism. 
Yeah. Uh, we yeah. were a little. We were a little bit destructive. Uh, we were kind of self-destructive kids. And and certainly. A lot of white zombie. A lot of white zombie and breaking an entry. Honestly, I think I think we we were kind of already living the thesis of the film, which is like it's better to be a have God annoyed at you than have Him feel indifferent about you. Mm-hmm. This kind of the search for validation, the search for like a place in our lives, or like this acknowledgement of our own thoughts and our own beings by like our peers and our and our parents, like even abstractly our parents, right? It's mm-hmm. so like, especially you know, Paul and I are from bigger families, and it's hard to develop a relationship with your parents because there's so many other things involved. So actually, having a meaningful relationship with your parents when you're a teenager actually becomes kind of a challenge, and it's almost like you're acting out, like you know, in hindsight, like it's like you're acting out to get their attention, right. And I and I noticed that in the book when I was thinking about like their their comments about like this idea of like fathers and God and and like the search for this like the search for attention just like notice me just fucking pay attention to me yeah you know like the, bringing it back like uh, to the film that scene with uh um you know Jack and Marla when you know they're he's finally confront her about it and they're talking about, you know, what are, what are you doing for this? And she's like, well, you know, you get to talk and, you know, someone's, when they think you're dying, they really like listen to you instead of listen, wait for their turn to talk. They're like, yeah, exactly. You know, it has that moment, which subconsciously, you know, like, Oh, this is my power animal. But anyways, I'll get off that bit, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it's just like, I think, I think that's true though. I think that's true in general. And that's like what I was talking about before. It's just like, we have as people, we have these weird pissing contests about our problems instead of trying to support one another and like, and, and, and help each other. Like we just like, Oh, you, that's what's going on in your life. Well, let me tell you about mine. Yeah. And that's super unhealthy. It's like not a good way to come from, you know? It's not a way to bolster each other. It's not a way to do anything. It's just about a way of like just dragging each other down as far down as you can go and then try to be like commiserate with me. Yeah. And it's not it's not always a healthy practice. Not to say that people shouldn't talk about their problems with each other. Of course they should. But I think our reaction sometimes should be more generous. We should be more like thoughtful about like how we hear what somebody is actually saying to us rather than trying to give an immediate solution and also trying to uh, empathize through your own life. Sometimes it it just doesn't like, you know, because it becomes a pissing contest at some point, like sometimes without meaning to be like, it just does. We all, we all love to kind of wallow in our misery a little bit. This is something I've noticed as like an older man. It's just like something about uh, really trying to get past that paradigm. Not wanting that anymore. Not wanting this game anymore. I don't want the game anymore. I just don't care about it anymore. It's not interesting. It doesn't get you anywhere. I'm not going to learn anything about myself. I'm not going to learn anything about you. Let's fucking just lay out the cards. And let's just fucking... Let's just have real talk. You know what I mean? And I I I think Fight Club at the core... There's a lot that is like that. That's kind of what it's about. It's about cutting out the bullshit. Exactly. Be authentic. Don't be single serving. You know, 
Like, yeah. what do you stand for? You know, and it's kind of like what you get out of that scene, that the car scene, like you know when they crash. Like, what do you want to do before you die? You know, like get to your bare bones. This is going to happen right now, on the spot. What do you wish you, that you did that you haven't done because we're about to die? You know, and that's really like what the whole a lot of like a lot what a lot of the film's about. So, well, I mean, I think that scene with uh, the guy behind the gas station. Raymond K. Hessler, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the most powerful scenes in the movie. Like this idea that you are faced with like what you want and extinction. Like either you achieve like what you want to do, like live to your own principle, live to your own desire, or you're dead. Or it's fucking over. Like that's fucking really intense. Like if you have that kind of if you have that kind of uh, pressure, is that yeah? You know what I mean? Like yeah. I mean, like what like what Tyler says after that, and that's why I think the scene is better in the movie than it is in the book. Is like he's like, you know, tomorrow is going to be the like the best food he's ever tasted. It's going to be the mm-hmm. best day of his life. He's free. He's free. When you put a gun to somebody's head and tell them the, that they need to do something, is that cathartic? Is that freeing? You know what I mean? Like that's that's some of the the, the philosophical layers of the both the book and the movie. It's like, is this a good thing to push people like this? Is it a good thing to push somebody to that degree? We have a fucking gun to their head and said, "Do what you feel like is your purpose." Yeah, you know or. You will die. Or you'll die. And, it's over. It feels like the sense because, like, you are already dying now. You are doing something, you know, that anybody can do. You had you had a passion. You were pursuing that. And then it was just, like, we uh, I was essentially uh, pulling out the defibrillators, like, on you. Like, with the gun. Like, we're, we're snapping you out of it. You know, get out of it. And then it keeps going back. And, like, well, I'm on track to do this, you know. And you know, in theory, all right. Now I'm doing this, and now I got nothing to worry about. Or maybe you know, or maybe he'll be fucked up for the rest of his life. Who knows? But, but just like you know, as a metaphor, but like, yeah, that's that's what happened. Like we snapped you out of it, and uh, wouldn't want to happen to me. But, <laughs> but that's why I love too. Like uh, when uh, um, Jack in the film is trying to find, it, he shuts the door, and then there's like the door slams. There's all like all it's. Just tear with a bunch of freaking license um, people's licenses, just insinuating that they've done that quite yeah. a bit since then. You know, which is something they, which is something they explore a little bit more in the book because they're called human sacrifices in the book. Mm-hmm. That that like they collect people's driver's license and they threaten them. They they ask them, "What do you want to do with your life? You have two weeks right. to start doing it." Yep. Do they follow through? We'll never know. Guess we'll never know. Guess we'll never know. Are there like cool aspects of the film that you like watching, revisiting this time? Um, honestly, like it was weird, man. I got really wrapped up in it. I know that's. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Just my me and my my modern dilemma, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I yeah, I got. Uh, I got really wrapped up in it and I really kind of like kind of felt for everybody in a weird way. And I understood the, the, the attractiveness of nihilism. I understood, um, how that is empowering. 
because it's kind of at certain times in my life, it's what I've wanted. Maybe even sometimes now. The complete destruction of everything so I can walk away. And like, and the intense reality of n- not doing that. Uh, it, it's a weird wake-up call in a certain, <laughs> in a certain respect. But it, because there's always the fear of that because I am that type of person. I am that type of person. I don't say this lightly. I, you know, listen, everybody at home. The Robert Paulson type or like the uh, type, what, what type? I am the type of person that would, uh, I don't know. I'm not like a follower in a sense. I try to be agreeable though. And sometimes I, I feel like that could get me into trouble if I take that too far, if I allow that too much. Right. The older the older I get as a man, I'm a little bit more like, nah, nah, nah. I'm gonna, I'll say what I gotta say. You say what you gotta say. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something we all we all have to navigate in some respects, one way or another. But I found myself really identifying with just the message of the movie, like. Because I have gone through a time in my life where I had felt completely unmoored from society and completely lost. Like, I spent a couple of years like that. And not knowing how to communicate it, not knowing how how to reach out. And um, I was like, shit, man. Like, I could have been, like, a Project Mayhem guy. Like, if if somebody enigmatic enough had come and spoken to me. Because, like, you know going back to the Jordan Peterson thing, like Jordan Peterson in a weird way is important to me because, uh, he kind of pulled me out of something a little bit, not totally, but inspired me to start reading again, get back into philosophy, learn history, uh, learn about like the, the world that I live in. Like I have this, I have this problem with being a little bit of an abstract person. And that causes me a great deal of bullshit <laughs> in my personal life because we're not we're not abstract people. Human beings are not abstract. We're not we don't live abstract lives. Right. And it, ca- it causes me a lot of problems. It causes me problems with my marriage. It causes me problems with my family. Like it just <clears throat> causes me problems. Causes me problems with my friendships sometimes. You know, Paul can tell you. Um. So, like, when I watch this, like, being just older and feeling kind of just deeper down the road and finding, at least I found some sort of solace. I've, I've come full circle in some way. I've moved past, like, that stage of my life. I felt a great deal of empathy for the, the concepts. And, the, and, like, this is the same way I feel about, like, when I, when I hear about incels and I hear about all these guys these guys that are being radicalized online because they hang out in these fucking 4chan and they hang out on these these message boards and they're taken kind of taken advantage of by like older men that also lurk there because they're also fucking losers um, like radicalizing them into like the MGTOW men going their own way kind of lifestyle before these guys have even started their fucking lives um, I have a lot of empathy for them I have a lot of empathy for the for the the secret weirdo, the people that just don't like understand how to conform to something or how to exist within a rule set. And I think fight club, both the movie and the book 
directly address that problem. And sometimes, and they show you, they show you a side of it that is not like, not a good outcome. Right. It's not a good outcome of it. Yeah. Good. So, so you said at the beginning, a cautionary tale. Well, that's you know, it's funny. I was uh, Edward. Nor- I was listening to an interview with Edward Norton he- from a couple of years ago, and he was like, "It's the proto incel movie." No shit. Yeah, he's like, he's like, this is talking about incel culture before that was the thing that people talked about. Oh wow. Yeah, and he's right. He's right. This is what these kids are looking for. This is what these guys are looking for. These these lost people. You know, not everybody's as you know as fucking uh, strong-willed as me and can make it through themselves. Uh, <laughs> but like, uh, you can. That is what Fight Club kind of like. This what resonated with me this time was like this idea that if you have a lost generation of people, it's so easily it's so easy to co-opt their feelings and their direction. So easy to, to take these, the petty grievances of youth and recontextualize it in a way that you're saying this is your life forever. And it's fucking evil and it's not fair and it's bullshit. Everybody grows up. Everybody gets to have more experiences than you did by the time you were fucking 17 or 20 or whatever. But what if somebody was like a real enigmatic figure that you just like, what if there was like an evil Jordan Peterson, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like how lost, like that's, I, I have so much empathy for the plight of the modern man for some weird reason. I see it in my brothers. I see it in, in other, in like your brothers. I see it in, in just people in general. I see this kind of, this this confusion about what the fuck you're supposed to do. Like, how the fuck are you supposed to exist in the modern times? And yeah. I think and I think that is ultimately what Fight Club is about. Yeah. Coping with, like, you know, evolving with the times, you know, rejecting that, like, what you are, like, what's literally baked into your DNA to be a provider, to be an aggressive like, type of, you know, species, to suppress it. And to get into a hamster wheel that you are not comfortable like running into. So and just and what do you do with that? Do you become Jack's boss, right? Or do you go with the you know the attractive let it all burn route with you know Tyler Durden? You know, so it's you know it's very interesting, very interesting. But just getting into that mindset and like powering through, which I guess which is a the essence of his power animal being the penguin. Just kept powering through, man. Kept powering through. For the better, for the better. Very appropriate, very appropriate power animal for this narrator of this journey. Joe or Jack, whoever you're talking about. Yeah, but do you think powering through is a healthy endeavor? I don't think there's any other endeavor. How do you not get through anything by powering through? Well, people power through and all. You could be powering through while you're moving. So what do you, I guess, so I guess we're, like, we're talking about powering through because we're my sense of like power through is just like okay, like one foot after the other, I gotta go. I've done a lot of things I did not want to do because I had it like an end uh, end goal in mind, you know, to get to. And so my mind that's powering through, like getting yeah. on there. But like, what what are, what are you talking about when you're saying? What if you're just still miserable while you're doing that? I mean, we can all mechanically take the steps towards 
powering through and through making it and achievement in terms of like uh, monetary success or getting a promotion, a raise, whatever. We can power through to the, through those things. But that, does that like make you happy? Does it define you? I mean, to me, I've come in my life where it's like... When you start, <laughs> what, what? What the fuck is like happiness? What, what does that mean? Well, ha- that happiness like- is an action. Happiness is like doing something that like produces a feeling. Right, but we're not always going to be in a constant state of happiness. Like no, it should but, never be. It should but, never. But part, right, so you're always going to power through whatever you need to do, you know, for the uh, the bare essentials to survive, and then, and if you're lucky, being able to share it with the people you love and and to share comfortably, which I think is what yeah, happiness but, is. But can you actually extend that if you're fucking miserable? Can you actually give that to people when you, if you're fucking miserable? Yeah. If you're if you're miserable as a person in what you do and what you have to do to power through, can you actually give anything of joy or happiness to anybody? Or are you just always going to be resentful? I mean, I guess this this is this I is the age old question. I mean, this is something that is much. We we'll come back and talk about Twi- Fight Club in twenty years, and we'll give you a recap on how this went. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, that is kind of what is the plight of like starting a family. And having kids and and uh, working a job that you like you invest time into or a career or whatever you want to call it like is the balance between like your sanity and what you're doing right because at some point some people have to give so much to like their job that they can't actually provide anything to their family in, like in a spiritual sense for lack of a better way to put it but they yeah. keep, but they keep a roof over their head, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, I guess, yeah. That that's me right now in this stage of my life. But yeah, yeah, I keep the roof over my head, but I fucking hate it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe I'm taking it personally. Maybe I'm taking it personally. Well, maybe you should uh, you should quit your job. I'll leave my family, and we will go professionally chain smoke cigarettes in the Philippines and get used to lady boys. And that's all I'm saying. <laughs> lady boys. There we go. All you lady boys. Um. <laughs> like I can't tell. Whatever. <laughs> You're soft. Um. <laughs> Are we already crossed the Rubicon? Is this already over? Yeah. It's at seventeen seventy six, man. <laughs> it's the spirit of America. It's in me. Spirit of America. Truth. Get telling. into Lady Boys. Truth it's like our it's luck. like our fat Dude, getting into <laughs> Lady like our Boys. Fat lady singing. <laughs> getting into Lady Boys is the most American thing you can do, Paul. It's the most libertarian action you can take. Honestly, if you get into Lady Boys, you're actually saving the country. So I suggest yeah. you do it now. The biggest consumer of ladyboys are, you know, sailors, and the U.S. Navy is directly part of it's required in the U.S. Constitution. So, well, yeah. Well, I'm going to. I'm going to petition the president to mandate that Janet Jackson re-records the song "Nasty Boys" to "OU Lady Boys." That's all I'm saying. Get started, I'll send. I'll I'm sign. Gonna, I'm going to save the country, everyone. All right, Paul, who would you rather fight, Lincoln or William Shatner? Uh, 
Shatner because I don't want to get my ass kicked. Those skinny guys got reach. They'll fight to their burger, as they say in the movie and the book. Um, I think I, I, you know, I'll go for Lincoln. Fuck it, you know. Well, you can get your ass kicked. I don't want to. <laughs> Why do you think you get your ass kicked? You know, Lincoln, well, what do you what do you know about Lincoln that makes you think because they fight because they fight till their burger they said it in the film and he was like tall as fuck so he's got a good range and I gotta get into that I don't want to do that basically this is a fucking shade at William Shatner saying he would not fight till burger I'm yeah no saying. no 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 I think one hundred percent Shatner would yeah no I, I I'd take that at any day any stage of my life I'd take on Shatner take on Shatner at the height. Peak of his career in Star Trek or take off Shatner now. I'm not scared. Fuck that guy. <laughs> he's going to come at you yeah. with some Esperanza and he's going to fuck Yeah, well, he's kid. got all that Priceline negotiator money. You know, you can hire somebody to do it for him, you know. Probably. Priceline, one of the biggest companies came out of that dot com. Boom. And they got these. They <laughs> Just so you know, guys. 20, 20 million bucks in advertising. In, uh, well, you know, what's, you know what also came out of the 90s, Paul, that you failed to mention? is Starbucks. And Starbucks is all over this fucking movie because Starbucks tricked everybody. Starbucks like, Starbucks like things. They have other things that are like. Uh, actually, there's a there's a Starbucks cup in every scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because Starbucks tricked everybody into paying five dollars for a cup of coffee. It became the new normal. And then Dunkin' Donuts gets to raise their prices like lunatics. I should not be paying more than a dollar and a quarter for a cup of coffee. Okay, it's fucking a cup of coffee. Yeah. They need to calm down. They need to calm down with that. Yeah, because I got a cold brew today from Dunkin'. They're like, you know, that'll be about that'll be about five twenty five. I'm like, what the yeah, fuck? Like, for a fucking cold brew cup of coffee for coffee, water and beans. Mm-hmm. To hell with you people. Hey, so I don't put anything in it anyway, so it's like less work for you. And- Dude, fucking Project Mayhem is the beginning right now. I'm already I'm I'm gonna start writing up the plans because this is this stop, stop, stop recording and just start talking about next steps because seriously Because Dunkin' Donuts now, is gonna go down <laughs> These coffee prices are out of control. It's ridiculous. I, I mean a man's just trying to buy a donut for his son. And buy a black cup of coffee, and then you tell me seven dollars. I know what is going on, Duncan's. When that guy died, whoever that mustachio man was who was in all the commercials, when he died, you guys went downhill. Downhill, just... so fast, so fast. <laughs> hmm. I, I like, I can't even now. I can't even, as they say. I'm thinking about the injustice of coffee prices. Okay, so now we're at the point of the movie. Project Mayhem is a thing. Okay? Do you think that the movie is amoral about Project Mayhem, or do you think it is saying that it is bad? You have 10 seconds to answer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I definitely, like, from the movie, I definitely think they're saying it's bad. I do, too. I do too. I think there's a little ambiguity there where they're just like, man, maybe the tactics ain't so great, but we're all gonna get go back to zero. Yeah. I well, mean, it's, a good, 
you know, the, like you know, debt free, you know, for everybody. It's a very liberated feeling, like you know, like like a moral cause to go you know, go do that. But I, uh, with a uh, like Jack's realization of what's happening and actively trying to undo everything, like this went out of control. And then we alluded to it earlier too, like you know, it's a cautionary tale of going on, like dramatizing and like uh, taking these feelings, these inclinations towards how you feel towards society as society treats you as, you know, you know, like a man, this is kosher terrible, like, like really engaging in like those thoughts and those actions towards that. And then getting the grips with reality, like, whoa, 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 no, I can't actually, you know, we can't actually go through with this. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I tend to agree. I did. I just, I think it's a little bit more ambiguous because, because the movie focuses on and they use as a through line as like kind of an anchor is the relationship with Marla, where the book does not do that. It does not use Marla as an anchor. She's more just a facilitator of the plot. Mm-hmm. But in the in the movie, and I think this was a smart move, was to make actually Marla like more important. Because as an audience, we have something to kind of ground ourselves to. Um, and in the movie, it, it's like, yeah, it's good that that he got rid of Tyler, but what's going to happen is going to happen. And now we're just going to, we just kind of accept it. You just got to accept it. It's, it happened. It's happened. Right. Yeah. The damage is done, but I've learned my lesson. Yeah. But still capitalism. Fuck it. Right. <laughs> so I think the movie is a little bit more cagey about that aspect in terms of like how do what am I really supposed to be taking away from this at, at some point um it's a beautiful scene I'll give it that like I really love the the final line of the movie is that you met me at a really strange time in my life which is the perfect when you're a teenager it is perfect as the perfect melodramatic fucking narcissistic line to say because we all said that we all said that kind of shit to girls everybody's trying to get laid everybody's trying to get put their hands down somebody's pants you're always like you're really special this is really different <laughs> and that's like marla singer's version of that like you know you made a really weird time in my life as capitalism crumbles as the credit unions crumble this is the most intense white knight gesture of love. I've destroyed the world for you, baby. Talk about, let's talk about me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's a little uh, delocated humor for you. It's about <laughs> me. Um, but, yeah, like I, I think the movie is, like I said, a little more cagey about it. I don't. But I still like it though, and I'm not. I don't, you know, I'm not one of these. I'm not one of these guys. I'm not one of these radicals. Okay, I'm just a regular dude. But um, I was like, "Fuck yeah, let's let's fucking burn it down and let's fight it out in the streets. <laughs> let's fucking go for it." Like I was like, "I'm good for a few punches. So let's go." <laughs> yeah, factory reset. Let's make it happen. Oh my god! Like I don't know. Would that be a good thing? Would it be a good thing to like just fucking like, clean the slate? In some, in some sense, right? I mean, was Jefferson was saying we should you know, paraphrasing. I think every twenty years have a revolution. You know, my account we're over two hundred years overdue for that. So, who knows? Who knows? 
Maybe these Antifa kids are right. Maybe they're right. <laughs> Fuck Columbus. What what are they like? What are they even though? Like what, like what's their message? What? Well, it's funny, you know, because Project Mayhem has such a parallel to Black Block, which is also like another name for Antifa. Like there is such a huge parallel there. Like their ideological perspective, their mission to be anarchists. Yeah. Like create chaos to destroy uh, consumerist imagery and to destroy like the notions of the founding of the country. Because in the book it's it's kind of more literary, it's more of metaphor, it's more like kill your father. Like that's the way it's in the book. In the movie, they make it a little more literal, like let's blow up computer stores, let's blow up Starbucks, let's roll a thing into a a food court. I'd say you have it the other way around. The movie, they're t- definitely talking about, you know, like anti-consumerism, you know, and uh, like all that, all that stuff. The book, they're just talking like, uh, they're no, talking about, it's like, yeah, I, I got to learn how to like you know, use a um, navigate. I got to learn how to navigate through the stars before we burn everything down. You know, like they have like a certain appreciation for, you know, science developed over time, like through man, because. They're obviously chemists. They're making soaps. They're making bombs. They appreciate that. They use that themselves. And then he's even talking about, I wish I want to learn how to uh, properly utilize astronomy, you know, moving forward before we burn everything down as well. So it's like, even in oh, that, they're not even. Yeah, because they want to be part of the human experience. They want to be part of the evolutionary step. Like, this is the whole thing of them being called space monkeys. Mm-hmm. Like, they're the, they are the test subjects for the future. Like there, there is this implicit notion. That's what that means. We're gonna fucking launch you into space. You're gonna be part of human evolution. The movie I don't, do not think gets that across very well at all. Actually, if I had a criticism criticism of the movie, it is the Project Mayhem stuff. It is the third act of the movie. I don't. I don't. I. I. I feel like we have a different movie up until that point, and then it becomes about radicalization very quickly. And then does not explore that. It does jump right into it. Yeah. And that's basically kind of like bookmarked between the scene where uh, Jack beats the fuck out of Jared Leto and then the rest of the movie. That's kind of the, the stopgap. Jared Leto, right? And then he has that like borderly, uh, borderline conversation where he's about to figure out the whole Tyler construct, right, with Marla. And he's like, and he's distracted by the, the noises in the basement. And it's our, he's like, are you talking about me? You know, like, oh, no, this conversation's over. And then next thing you know, the first space bunker recruit is up there. So it just, yeah, it really did jump into that. Mm-hmm. It really did. Yeah, I didn't think, I didn't think about that. It's saying out loud now, too. It really just kind of steamrolled the next. Like, what happened before that? He beat up, you know, Jared Leto down that, and everything else prior to he didn't uh, take out his boss yet before that, did he? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, he, he, he yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. Well, right. in the movie, in the movie, I think one of the things that is actually superior in the movie that it, it creates a sense of escalation for for the narrator or Jack or Joe, whoever you want to call him. There's a sense of es- escalation, um, but he never like completely buys into the project because he doesn't know about it. He's cut out of it. Right. And um, 
And I understand why the movie did what it did, I suppose, like giving it kind of short shrift because like Jack is, is the audience avatar into that part of the story or into the story in general. But so he, so what he doesn't know, we don't know. So we don't get a lot of the stuff. So we're looking for context clues. We're looking for texture. We're looking for things like that to understand what is going on. And I think sometimes uh, at the end of the movie, it feels a little bit rushed. I would say even actually after after the fact, or after the point that uh, Jack and Tyler figure out that they're the same person, I actually think like the whole final confrontation with Tyler is kind of like hacky. Like it's like kind of like whatever. The yeah. movie the movie kind of stops being interesting at that point. And then just becomes like a gimmick. Um, I don't know. That was my like. You yeah, know, when they, well, when they keep keeping keep... with like the sexual frustration, like you know, like subtext of everything, and you know, the climax, and you know, the porn thing, like you were saying, like hacky. It's like all leading up to that because at this point, like Tyler, like how he's visioning Tyler now, his head shaved, he's got the freaking like pimp jacket on. He's got the really nice shoes. They make even make an emphasis on his shoes when he jumps out of it, like the van. Like, look yeah, at these sweet yeah. freaking like leather boot shoes, right? Which he's doing like karate stances, doing karate stances. We were thirteen. Now, yeah. Well, I'm saying like going into that, it's just all lead up there to like to the big explosion. You know, he gets rid of that too. So, you know, at the end, you're just like you know, like like you said, hacky. But maybe that was the point. Just we're climaxing here. We're getting to the end. We're going to be like every other fucking movie that you've seen because you're not unique, Snowflake. You're the same decaying organic matter as everything else. Who knows? This is a possible. It ain't Kubrick, man. It ain't Kubrick. No. That, well, that, that, that's what you're saying right there. That, that's what you're saying. That's all happy shit. Like, no, whatever. Well, I, I, was- I did think that the way that they helped, that they dealt with like the uh, uh, Jack almost getting his balls cut off in the movie is way more succinct and uh, it's just better in the movie than it is in the book. In the book, it's like these these people that, from Project Mayhem on a bus. They got him on the bus, he's getting out. And, oh, yeah, it's a big but, drama. drama yeah, but thing. in the movie, they just like, they, sh- they do this shortcut to say like, this is how much influence this has. Yeah. Like it got up to the police department. Yeah, exactly. There, there are police detectives that are in on this shit. Yeah, and it's so funny because it's like this, this Chuck Palahniuk creation of like this, this concept of just males needing to bond. Like, how powerful could that actually be? You know, Paul and I have a a very close male relationship. We're like, we're like, we're like we we joke about like the idea of being like. Well, you know, maybe someday, like, you know, like, like we're just like hetero life mates. We joke about that. And that's kind of like in some, in, in some parts of the movie, that's kind of what the movie's about is like this, this establishment of a male relationship. And, uh, which is, I think pop culture and people sometimes like it automatically reads as like gay to people. And especially because Chuck Palahniuk being gay himself people have read like way, way, way too much into the homoeroticism of this book and this in the, in the movie itself. 
uh, because I think it's just about uh, I I don't think people have just had like very good like male friends right. where you can have a deeper spiritual connection. Like Paul and I are like we're we're fucking brothers. We're like spiritual right. brothers. We have been through the gamut together, emotionally, literally, whatever you want to call it. We have not fucked each other yet. Yeah, there's still time. There's, there's still, still time. time. There's a lot of life to live. I mean, I still yeah, smoke and so. drink, so who knows? But we got at least twenty years. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But people like automatically read that as like homoerotic, without respect. And I think Fight Club kind of addresses this, this idea that like you can have like this deep connection, like deep male relationship. And it's not like some weird sex. It's not like, well, not weird, but it's just like, it's just no, not a it's sexual just like, thing. Yeah, like, don't, don't make, like, male intimacy, like, you know. Yeah, taboo. taboo you know? Tab- exactly. Yeah, because, and that's, I think. And, what, and that's, like, like, well, I didn't know Pal- uh, Chuck Palahniuk was, like, gay until he told me this, but, like, it's, yeah. like, such a shitty thing. Like, yeah, no, I didn't. Well, I didn't, you know, I don't fucking read any of that shit. But, like, um. But that's gotta really be shitty for him. Like, oh yeah, uh, we're going to try to draw like homoeroticism on this because he was gay, and that's all he can write about. Apparently, like, how fucking nope. shallow and, is that? And pe- people have, and like, I read a lot of criticism. Like, oh, this is a homoerotic. Like, I mean, you can like, there is like an asp- aspect of that. To, so, like, when uh, you in know, the right movie, in the yeah, movie there is in the movie there is right, right. Be- because like, yo guys, listen everybody. Brad Pitt got into really good fucking shape. <laughs> There's not a motherfucker on the planet that does not envy at some point in their life Tyler Durden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man. And and there is a homoeroticism in that, like th- this appreciation for the male form, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um. But. But just as as a man that has had a close male relationship, which maybe is unique. I don't know. I don't know how many people get to experience this. I don't. Uh, it's not like homoerotic. It's just. It's just like. But like connecting with somebody on a deeper level and just like having this understanding. Like I can hug you. I can tell you I love you. I can. Uh, Paul and I fight. We fucking argue. We fucking disagree. Like we we have like a really spicy personal life. It's, but it doesn't necessarily nece- or necessarily necess- necessitate like some sort of like weird homoerotic nature. It doesn't. And I think when that is like a the problem with a lot of guys like being able to open up and like really express their true feelings, they don't have that fucking avenue. They don't have that friend. They didn't have my Paul. Yeah. Oh, just at every phase, right? For puberty, after puberty, first fight, after your well, first fight. Well, because when we were like, kids, when, when, we were, when we were kids, if people talked the way we fucking talked, they would have called us faggots. They called us <laughs> faggots when we were in our 20s wearing yeah. women's pants for fun. Because well, we were in a band and we were having fun. So we wore okay. women's pants, right? They called us faggots then. Like... It's like pardon like a European. <laughs> exactly. You're a real you're a real uh Rupert Brooks. No, but like I'm serious though. Like 
this there's this like this fucking social pressure between men not to just fucking open up to to each other and it's yeah. and it's heinous and it's fucking wrong and it's like this idea that like oh if you do that man that means you want to suck that dude's dick you want to be gay like it's like no i just want to connect or, with a person that kind of understands I, on the on the gay sense but just to add like you know like masculine sense oh then you're not you know as manly like you know you don't you don't talk about that shit you just fucking bury that shit and take it to your grave you know you don't you know, yeah. do that and it's just like it's come to find out like later on like like you have to air that shit out you, you have, have to get you have, you have to get it off your chest and um and a lot of times like some heavy stuff like you know throughout the years as you're you know rolling with the punches going through new different chapters and sometimes it's really easier to just talk to a dude. And I think that's what's like sustained us for that long, having like that male intimacy, if you want, being able to be open and just talk about it. And it, not a lot of people have it. So it, it is a great thing, but it's, it's always been, it's always been like challenged over the years. But I think now going into the 2020s, yeah. I think we're pretty safe. In yeah. <laughs> I think, I think we've, opened, we've busted open a new chapter, but like yeah, a new man. chapter of the fight club. But, like, it speaks to what Fight Club represents, right? Like, this idea of, like, uh, being able to come together as men and do what men do mm-hmm. and be, like, okay with that and be secure in that. It's right. like, like, I've heard some, like, oh, it's about, it's about, like, I've, this is not from the writer, Chuck Palahniuk, by the way. This is this fuckheads online I've read over the years. Oh, it's about like Jack is really gay and he doesn't know how to express himself, and so he's looking for male intimacy. I'm like, no, motherfucker! Like, every dude looks for male intimacy. Like, it doesn't mean I'm gonna suck your dick. Like, that's not what that fucking means. Right. Like, you need like friends. You need people in your life that drag you through this shit together. Like, it makes life. First of all, it makes life more meaningful. Second of all. How are you supposed to do any of this shit alone? How is nobody ever did it through the history of mankind alone? They didn't. Back in the the tribal times, it was about survival. So you found the people in the tribe that were able to best like fit into slots for survival. It's not that much different today. It's really not. It's very primal. This is. And sometimes we do not respect that. We do not appreciate it. We, we, we denigrate it. We, we talk about it like some evil fucking thing. The idea that like people would want to get together and do their own thing or want to get together and, and express themselves to each other. Yeah. Because you're not allowed to do that unless you're from a certain persuasion or you're a certain gender or whatever. Like you can't, You're not allowed to do that right now. And it's going to cause a cavalcade of problems, in my opinion. Yeah. You think Fight Club is the fucking, like, the Fight Club is the tip of the iceberg. Fight Club is, is the warning tale. It is the morality tale for our generation. And, uh, and I'm rambling at this point, so let's just stop. Yeah. Anyways, at the end of the movie, buildings explode. Credits can reset to zero. Q in Pixies. Q and on. Hello, true patriots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I like I. 
Ah, man, it's so weird. Like, I was so... I was so moved by Fight Club at 33. I was, like, really moved by it. I identified with everyone. Because uh, they're so archetypal that they represent just different moments in your life. You know? Except for Angel Face. Fuck that guy. I'm glad he got his shit kicked out. Fuck that guy. And Jared Leto, the real guy. Just kidding. I'm sure he's a great guy. But fuck the Joker. Um but no, it just makes me wonder, like doing these things with Hishan, it just makes me wonder like yeah, like what else do I need to revisit that I watched when I was a kid, you know? So like it's everything. It's, uh, yeah, 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 everything, right? So but it, it's definitely it's definitely a movie as, you know, a teen like I wouldn't let I wouldn't let Troy watch that the age I was when I watched it, you know. I think yeah, go off the other we probably watch something else either, just play Roblox or some shit. But, I mean, it, it, th- those are, like, uh, you know, those are tough ideas. Uh, uh, well, the outcomes of, like, of those ideas of people, what they're struggling with, what they're feeling, and that's what their outlet's going to be. And that's, like, what we picked up on teenagers. We just saw, like, at the surface level. Oh, let's have iCloud, just, like, you know, s- you know, disrupt shit. And when you're fucking 15, that's all you know. We, like you said earlier, we were already doing that shit before we saw the movie. Yeah. Right, like, like yeah. oh, so that was right up our alley. Like the very like you know surface level, you know immature aspect of that too. But just like going back again, like it just definitely was like you just said, like a lot of more appreciation because I have a new sense, of, you know, empathy of you know everything, every character in there I've seen in some variation in my life now, my adult life, like working especially especially like with Jack, man, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just going through the whole London thing because that's just kind of like some of the jobs I had in my life, you know, were in those types of, uh, you know, office yeah. yeah. you know, so like, it's like totally, totally get it, totally get it. And just, uh, in, uh, in the, those types of people in those jobs, you know, just really go over the need, the nice houses. I need to, you know, I need the hybrid cars. I need, I need this. We have yeah. like, it's great. It's just, well, just I, down, like, I don't I mean, the most basic idea of Fight Club is that the things that you consume become you. And mm-hmm. I think that is uh, very true. Yeah. I think this idea that we work towards something because we feel like it will provide comfort for us and the ones we love uh, sometimes can be a false pursuit like because it will actually create a misery that is much different than keeping a roof over people's heads, you know? Yeah, I think about that shit all the time. It's fucking. I make. I, I get paranoid about it. You know, ninja paranoid. I go, ah, shit. <laughs> like how do? How, like if I'm not happy, like will I imbue happiness to my child? Like if I'm yeah. fucking miserable doing in the life circumstance I'm in, if I'm fucking miserable doing that. What does it what does it say yeah. to that little bastard? You know? <laughs> yeah, no, because they pick up. Yeah, they pick up. Oh, no, they pick up everything. All the nonverbals they pick that up. So, are you happy, Dad? Are you happy? Motherfuckers, tell me to take a deep breath. What the fuck? Well, He's three years old. <laughs> you don't. You don't, Daniel Tiger. Me, motherfucker. I Daniel Tiger. I, you. That's what I say. I say no, 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 no. You take a deep breath. <laughs> I punch him in the face and then we start a fight club. <laughs> no, but it, it's, yeah. 
it's so weird that like it really does speak to you as like a man uh, on this very like guttural primal level, just in the same way that like Jordan Peterson does. It's just like just get your shit together. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking... Yeah. Yeah. No. It, but it, it just like at at the end of the day, though, it's like you know, like your self worth and your purpose. And if you don't have that, then the dangers of where that could take you, right? Mm-hmm. And so. And uh, just stopping and reflecting, you know, it, it, unfortunately for you know, Jack's character, that part's like when everything is burning down, but you might be at a rock, weird time in my life, but, you know, I think I think I got it now, right? But very dramatic, right? But I just at the end of the day, that's, that's what it is, you know, before it gets too late, before you go down a certain path, just, like, realize yourself, what are you doing? Like, are you happy? What would you wish you've done before you died, right? And yeah. just kind of, like, take that. And I think, like, watching it again uh, this time of my life, I'm like, that's just kind of, like, what I got in the backseat of the car. Like, okay, what, what, I, you know, what do I want to do before I die? You know? Yeah. You know, um, Kessler, you know, behind the you know, gas station, you know, like, shit, what did I want to be? You know, and just have, like, think about that, you know, and that get you to think about, like, this one was like, what should you be doing, you know? And, you know, we talked earlier, like, you know, are you just, you know, power driving? Are you just powering through? You know, like, like what are you actually doing? And you get into this, you get into these situations, right? And, but, it, you know, nothing, it's life, nothing's binary and whatnot. And that's not the point. And I think what you're really getting out of that is just, like, you know, stop and reflect and figure yourself out. Get your shit yeah. together. And so, um, definitely get that message at, uh, you know, 13, 14, or whatever the fuck it was when we watched the first time, but, you know, at that prime age 34, man, that's what I got out of it this time. And it was, uh, really fun watching, knowing that you're going to watch it this time and, you know, and read the book, uh, a week, a couple weeks ago and everything yeah. is just, uh, it was great. It was a good time, man. It was a really good time. No, and, it, uh, re- it really, it really was. I started listening to the pictures get put them back on the uh, on my phone, you know, and uh, just go through. It's uh, it's just yeah, really really good times, man. Well, because this it is a nostalgic trip trip back to a different time in our lives, and then to have it kind of come full circle and like really be able to like understand the themes, like just just at this this early age. Of understanding, like, oh, I, I know what they're talking about now. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought it was just all cool nihilism and existential thoughts and uh, fucking proving yourself and who is cooler and who is not. And now you're just like, this is the saddest fucking shit I've ever seen. <laughs> because it is your life in some sort of weird way. Like, or maybe it's my life. I will not say ours. But it is, it is like, I just like really felt it on a deep level. And I was happy to have understood that I moved past some of it. Because yeah. like I, I could see how attractive some of that nihilism is. You know, as a person that is like mildly self-destructive, does not want happiness on some sort of guttural level. I was just like, fuck, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's, I'm very happy that, like, uh, things did not end that way. Yeah. 
snapped out of it, man. And that's part of it. Well, I have the guy the good fortune of having people in my life that stayed with me through that, you know, like and not everybody has that. So I have a deep sense of empathy for the people that like get caught up in that shit. I really do. That's why it's always so important to me. It's like keep talking to people, keep like communicating, keep like open, open lines, mm-hmm. challenge each other, whatnot. Like, because I see how easy it is. Like, Fight Club is a great example of how easy it is to be seduced into something you don't understand. Yeah, you know. And uh, I don't know. Do you have any? Do you have any final thoughts, Paul? Do you have any th- final thoughts on the film, the book, the philosophy, anything? Uh, yeah, man. I just kind of did that bit earlier, though. But it, like, just going back, rewatching it now, you know, as a as an adult, just the philosophy uh, of it is a very. I my takeaway is a very cautionary tale of where you can go, you know, like mentally if you don't uh, have a firm understanding of like what your principles are, what you stand for, like what you want in life and how, whether uh, you're going to follow somebody else, like everybody that was part of project mayhem, or you're going to like let your own, like, you know, um, internal demons, like, you know, in this case, personifies like Tyler Durden, take control and be that person that guides you through that. Like, uh, like if you don't understand what you are, then you'll be like picked up by anything. You know, Stanford, yeah. uh, nothing, you'll fall for anything, right? So, uh, or one of those many different edges you can use. And I think at the end of the day, that's just really kind of like a, like what it's about, um, like sticking true, uh, like though like uh, yourself and like sticking uh, to your principles and just trying to be uh, be aware of like, you know, uh, any, any type of like uh, psychological thought traps that can like take you down a destructive path. No, I 100% agree. I think that is the ultimate message of the book. I think it's the ultimate message of the movie. Is that, like, it is how attractive those things are and how easy it is to get caught up in it. Like, it really is. And that's why I think the the movie and the book were kind of a little bit ahead of of their time. Mm -hmm. They did not hit the cultural moment where it was mainstream to feel that way. Yeah. You know? And... uh, so it kind of would do more of a service if it had come out in like 2015, like a cultural service. But now it's something that like cool people get to feel special because they understand. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I got that message before it was cool. Yeah. We were talking about that in the 90s, man. We were talking about that in the Palinic was writing other books. Anytime. Real quick, why 2015 though? Why 2015 and not like now? Because I think uh, 2015 is a lightning rod for the times we live in, uh, pop culturally. Um, There was this giant move towards, um, for lack of a better way to put it, like fourth wave, fifth wave feminism in every aspect of pop culture uh, that was kind of incoherent, didn't really make a lot of sense, didn't make a good case for itself, but enough people just kind of bend to the knee kind of went with it we saw this in movies we've seen this big studios kind of bent to this uh marvel for instance is like a propaganda studio basically it's just like the most garbage movies don't ever don't let your kids watch anything from the mcu that's all i'm saying (laughs) except for wakanda no 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 
Wakanda is the worst. Yeah, we're gonna get Terry Crews to call you. Um, <laughs> no, I just I I think we're in a we're in a very weird time, man. I really do. Yeah. And I think uh, I think Fight Club speaks to a lot of the weirdness. I really do, especially for young men. And yeah. I don't. And and the dangerous thing about Fight Club is that like you can kind of see both sides of it like you can see how it's attractive you can see why it's not great uh, so if you're a young if you're a young dude it's kind of a Rorschach test a little bit what do you what do you get out of the end of what do, what do you get out of the end of Fight Club the book or the movie like what do you get out of the end of, what do you what do you think the what the meaning was you're gonna get a, a thousand different answers yeah but smart people like me who drink distinguished bourbons. Seventeen seventy six shall rise again. <laughs> said the humble water filter salesman from Austin, Texas. Um if you keep repeating, they'll catch on. They'll catch on. Sunday, Paul. So, Paul, I don't, I don't. I'm not explaining jokes anymore. Like it's just my life paradigm now. But uh, I did this brilliant documentary about the meaning of the monolith, and uh, I got a thumbs down from somebody. I was like, "You're a disgusting pig. You're a pig. You're a pig." Said thumbs down was a uh, Rob Ager. So. <laughs> well, if my dad. That would that would both that would both like. Make your day and crush you at the same time. Yeah, because that's the, I call him Daddy Ager, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my dad's dead, so I get to look for a dad. I'm sorry, Paul, you're fucked. But uh, um, you got to live forever and disappoint you forever. My dad got, only got to disappoint me for a certain amount of time. Um, <laughs> what about your <laughs> final, final takeaway? My my final takeaway is like I I love the movie coming back to it after so long. Um, I did have the same familiarity, like I could like literally recite the lines back to the movie in my head, like I knew every detail of it. Um, but I connected with it so much more, like it meant so much more to me. And actually, like, I felt the resonance of it. Like, I just, like, felt something deeper about it. And I felt like I understood it in a way that was, like, more primal, more guttural. In a way that, like, as a kid, I reacted to it primally. But intellectually, now I understand it primally. Like, I understand, like, what motivates that. Like, why do I want to be like that? Mm-hmm. Um... And I think the movie makes a great case for it. I think it makes a great case for the maintenance of that and the importance of that. And um, so now I'm going to dedicate my life to raising my son as a UFC fighter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just joking. My kid reads books. Fuck off. Um, Get him in the box. There's more money in it. Yeah, I know. More money, but less honor. Um, or whatever they say. I don't watch sports. That's the weird thing about me. I don't. I'm not a guy's guy. You know what I mean? 
Mm. I know it's painful sometimes, but you know oh, this this motherfucker will bore you a baseball yank to my yang, to my yang. <laughs> this asshole will bore you about baseball for fucking two days, and I'm it's... sitting here like, yeah, cool, man. <laughs> yeah, fuck off. Yeah, fuck off with that noise. You even, even know my shirt, dude. Fucking moose with red socks on the back. Oh uh, no, trust me. Sweet. Well, I I noticed it, but I did not feel it worthy of my mentioning. Ah, <laughs> good night, Superbox Nation. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, hey, we have a kind of rambling, deep, introspective conversation about Fight Club, the movie, and the book. So thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to know more about Zoobox, check out the links in the description. Okay? We got Facebook. We got Instagram. We got my personal Twitter. If you'd like to make a recommendation for anything you see in the daily videos or for Zoobox Ghosts of the Movie in the future, leave it in the com- comment section. I'll put it on the list. And uh, I've just realized how drunk I am, so I'm just going to end it. This is all. This is how it is with Paul. He drags me here down to these depths. Unprofessional, wild, wasteful. I had notes. I had notes. I had notes too, Paul, and we got through none of them. I'm a we'll see you next time on Zuba. Go, movie.